Okay, inappropriate Earl. SoundCloud and iTunes. We will be back on the iTunes charts. Just taking care of some in-house business. And, you know, I get very excited to interview everyone I have on this podcast. I've had some great guests on my couch. From musicians to comics, actors, porn stars, pro athletes. It's a real gamut of who I've had on. And today I have a man, he's a jack of all trades. Musician, engineer, fashion designer, an icon in the music business. And I mean that seriously. I'm going to do a slow reveal. And I bring you on this Tuesday night, the night before Halloween, the night before his big concert, Mr. Larry Flint. <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> Mr. Jack Atlantis. Excuse the the uh, silhouette while I have to do my... Uh, how are you, Jack? I'm doing swell. Now, you got a big concert tomorrow night. Let's get into that. Yeah. Because I, you know, I'm a metalhead like we were just talking. Mm-hmm. And uh, I only know of uh, the Teenage Werewolves, which is the world's preeminent... Preeminent, yes, it is. Cramps tribute band. Yeah, and uh, there's a plethora of them out there now. Yeah, but there's only one. Well. You got, you know, there's like a lot of Kiss tribute bands. (laughs) But there's Cold Gin, and then there's everybody else. Everybody else, yeah. Although I will say my favorite Kiss tribute band is this band of midgets based in Seattle. (laughs) Good. They are all, they all dress up as Gene. And they're called Gene's Addiction. <laughs> and they do like uh, alternative uh, Kiss songs, like uh, with an alternative spin. Oh. So it's kind of an interesting take. Not like uh, back in the New York groove because it was Ace Fraley. We're talking. Which was actually a Russ Ballard song, but we won't oh, go. Oh, it there. was. That had to kill Gene and Paul oh. that uh, the only hit off the four solo albums was one an Ace tune and to a cover and then when they were on the muppet show they had to do beth while he played piano and sang the song i could see gene behind him just like what the hell am i doing behind this guy that had to kill paul and gene <laughs> on the peter show. yeah the biggest because that was such a big hit Beth when it came out. Pretty much their biggest hit. And then I think their second biggest hit was uh, I Was Made for Loving You. Oh, I love that one. Well, I'm a Desmond Child man. I am. I love. I'm a Giorgio Moroder man. American Gigolo is one of my, maybe my favorite soundtrack. Is it? Yeah. Uh, just because it fit that, the 80s. And uh, I believe he also did the Village People movie. Can't uh, Stop the Music. I didn't see that. A lot of people didn't. Um. Who did the Scarface soundtrack? Was that also Giorgio Moroder? I mean, okay. he had a nice run That's in the right. 80s. Uh, yeah, he even stuck Blondie in there, I, I remember. And yep. it was in the dance scene with Pacino and, and Pfeiffer. And, I don't think Blondie... No, Blondie was in American Gigolo. Well, there's there's one song. I might have to look this up. As you can tell... Rush, Rush, Rush to the Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's Blondie, but as you can tell, Jack... just like her. I don't have an assistant, so I've <laughs> yeah, got to. I don't to, either. Oh, okay. Then now we can. Now we got something to talk about. We should go into business then. Uh, 
uh, the two, the only two people in Hollywood who are working with no assistant. But tell us I'll about be Manny. You could be Mo. No, actually, we need I a guess. Jack. <laughs> Let's skip the Manny. You be Mo. I'll be Jack. <laughs> There'd just be two of us. Well, I've got Mo's forehead from the Three Stooges. <laughs> So, like, the cramps seem to be, because um, I remember on the USA Network in the 80s, they would always play the cramps and the weirdos. And I was, I, I uh. kind of remember their videos, but I wasn't, you know, I was into the cars, like we were talking oh, about. me too. And, uh, I mean, just Benjamin Orr, rest in peace. Just From Cleveland. Yeah. Yes. Uh, just, wow. What a voice. Yeah, and he had the look. Uh, he had the, the voice and the look. Uh, I'm surprised how well they uh, were able to just divide up the hits. You know, it was almost 50-50, Rick versus Benjamin, who sang what? I mean, Ben... And the voices I, were pretty similar. I mean, you have to be a diehard Cars fan to know who's singing which song, because a lot of people can't tell. Which I think was part of the problem why they, you know, after Heartbreak City was like such a massive album... And so many people, I think, thought Rick Ocasek sang Drive, oh, yeah. where Ben did. Even in the video, it's clear it's Ben singing, but Rick right. was in most of the video. That had to be a, a problem between those two. I would imagine Ben was like, hey, uh, you know, I'm singing half of our hits. Yeah. Why are you in, why are you the face of every... And why you get the supermodel? And I'm, yeah, I'm sure Ben <laughs> and did she okay. Was in the, she was in the Drive. Actually, actually how they met... Rick and Paulina, Paulina, pa Paulina Poroskova. Yeah, they met on on that video shoot. Good for him. Yeah, because he's kind of an odd looking dude. I mean, in the traditional male yeah. looks department, uh, and he's a spider on a string. He's like stick thin. I saw him at the Bel Air Hotel once because I used to live right down the road from there, mm. and. He came out from their private entrance and it was like seeing an alien because he was so, he's, yeah. he's very tall, probably 6'4", but incredibly skinny. And with a baseball-sized Adam Adam's apple. And a head that is bigger than mine. And I got a big fucking head, Jack. <laughs> I mean, if I was riding... Oh, wait a minute. Do it, do it. I want to hear it. If I was riding <laughs> shotgun with Kennedy, Jack, he'd still be alive. <laughs> I laughed. I laughed so hard at that one. That's such a great line. But you know what? I think it's Rick's hair is which is big. I think his head's actually small. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know what's going on. I mean, they just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. No, it's about time. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I and I want to get into this with you because, like, you, you've engineered bands. You, you, you're a musician yourself. I don't understand the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like. How do the, uh, the I know there's a lot of politics like who gets inducted when and and is it is it the rap hall of fame is it the rock and roll hall of fame yeah I mean it's I just blur don't lines understand like how the, a band like the Cars who I mean I know their um, their run was a little shorter than most but I, I don't mm -hmm. think any band fits more than they do from the standpoint of innovative uh, influ influential certainly you know. I don't know if bands like Weezer are around, if not for the Cars and the Killers. And yeah, you could tell when the the singer from the Killers uh, inducted them; like he was near tears. Like he was he. Oh, it was awesome! It made me a fan of theirs. <sighs> and the bass player from the Weezer, uh, from from the Weezer, from <laughs> yeah. Weezer, uh, filled in for Benjamin Orr. So it was like, oh, he, yeah, it was great. Why did I not see this? I gotta, I gotta look it up. I mean, it's a very, uh, 
it kind of made me a little sad when they played because the drummer David Robinson is he looks like uh I don't know like Hunter S Thompson now oh, he's got like this he? beard and like this wild white hair and uh I mean Elliot Easton looks pretty much the same and uh Greg yeah. Hawks on keyboards it's, still looks like a 17 year old yeah I mean yeah. and Rick O'Case it kind of looks the same yeah but let's get into you. This is not. Uh, oh, I'm having fun though talking about all this crap. <laughs> well, as you can tell, <laughs> all right, Jack, we'll talk about some other crap. And as Vicky Hamilton can tell you, a shout out to Vicky mm. Hamilton. Yes, Vicky, uh, for setting this up. Right. Uh, I love her to death. Although she didn't want to talk about poison for more than ten minutes on the podcast, she said, "Or all talk about poison," but then we got to move on. I'm like Vicky, I can't. Poison was my jam. Oh. Um, she set this interview up. So, Vicky, I know you're listening. Thank you very much. Um, how how do you go about starting a Cramps tribute band? Like, were you that much of a fan of the band? I was, um, and I became more and more so afterwards. Um, I'm from Akron, and so is Lux, Akron, Ohio. So, I think I think that plant a seed was planted way back then and um i would uh you know do my armchair research and find out he used to watch um these tv shows that i would watch because they're they're regional uh, regional shows right uh, one was called um the gould and uh, it was uh, the host was this um uh, this guy with this uh, crazy um, Albert Einstein hair and a long beard. Uh, and he had these goggles on and, um, uh, you know, they play like B horror films and uh, in between the commercials, they'd come back and always do skits. And so I would, as a kid, I would see those in rerun uh, or these other crazy uh, Cleveland late night shows like a uh, big Chuck and Houlihan and, so anyway, uh, I, I read in interviews that, that uh, Lux would watch these things. Um, being from Akron, we'd always get Cleveland stations. And um, uh, my dad uh, went to the same high school as him. So it was just, there was this little synchronicity going on. I think that's how, how the sea got planted. But, but you know, I, I grew up in the goth world too. And, you know, every, every DJ is going to play at least one cramp song in the night. Right. What... Um... Like what bands did you listen to growing up? Well, yeah, we already covered the Cars. Um, you know, I liked, I loved all classic rock growing up because I had uh, older aunts and uncles who were sort of my brother and sisters. Uh, so I'd be influenced by them. Um, you know, seeing the the Diamond Dogs album cover unfold, and uh, you know, as, as like a seven year old, it's pretty freaky. So. Um, I, I was uh, drawn to the things that either scared me musically, <laughs> things I couldn't understand what I was looking at, like uh, like Bowie. Um, and I thought, you know, this is such a moving power, uh, powerful thing, music, with, with the imagery. And so music and imagery, when, it, when um, you know, when MTV came along, uh, it was just like the, the perfect synergy for me. Um, so I was always drawn towards uh, artists that could also bring the uh, the visual element to it, which hence, you know, the cramps. Oh my God. I mean, I, I sound so old saying this, but 
like same old, but I don't see that in today's world. Like, yeah, you don't yeah. see a band like once again the Cars, like making not only great music but the videos. Like that, you might think video was just so iconic with the the graphics and the storyline, and then you know, of course, the you know my genre of eighties metal was. These great videos and you know Kiss and Bon Jovi. Oh yeah, I was a video junkie. I I even recorded them just to have as on my own personal archive uh, all videos. Yeah, I was just the whole the whole medium um, just fascinated me. Making these micro films. Yeah, and the fact that these that the record labels would throw out that kind of money to make these things. I mean, obviously they're promotional tools, but um, you know you don't that's like the golden age of music videos and they don't, you know, those budgets aren't around anymore. Nowadays, I think the bands have to mostly do it themselves or be really innovative with the budgets. I mean, I don't even think they, uh, MTV does videos. It's Jersey yeah. Shore. Yeah. I honestly haven't, I haven't watched in, in years and it's sad. They really should take the M out of the TV and call yeah, it something just, else. I mean, I, you know, it's stop or no, I'm 16 and pregnant. And Are you? I, you should have told me before. I wish I was I would have brought you a present. Uh, but I just like, it's hard to explain to younger people that what MTV meant. Like, yeah. Uh, right. You know, Billy Idol was just like, to me, it was just like, wow. Oh, by the way, I got, I don't know if you know, but he's playing down the street right now. Can we pause this and go up there? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What are we doing here? Yeah. I uh, love Billy Idol. Generation Sex. It's him and Steve Jones and a couple other members, half from Generation X, half from the Sex Pistols. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge Steve Stevens guy. Well, me. Yeah, me too. I mean, uh, I yeah, just, he had a great look. He looks like a Jersey Shore housewife. He certainly does. And just... <laughs> You know, got the especially as it got older. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. We, listen, we all get older. We all get a wrinkle here or there. And, but I just love how he still wears the leather bell he bottoms. Does. Yeah. The Versace shirt unbuttoned. Uh, you know, maybe hair. his belly hanging out. And he's just, I'm Steve Stevens. Right. I'm going to dress how I want. But I saw them open up for Morrissey recently. And you wouldn't think that that pairing would work. Well, you say them, you're talking about Billy. Billy Idol and Morrissey. Really? Uh, at the Hollywood Bowl. <sighs> and it was so fun to watch Billy Idol kind of know that he had to work the Morrissey crowd. Like he couldn't just oh, go out that's there and. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know. So what it, did he do? How did he zig or zag? to do that you know and it, i i like the uh the first song he uh did was shock to the system which was off one of his lesser known albums yeah. uh and then you know he gets right into the hits but he, he was doing some jokes and uh this is uh he had some like harvey weinstein jokes that were pretty funny i Dude. thought he's like i can't even jack off anymore because i'm afraid harvey's in the couch or like he's like in the <laughs> these little you know morrissey is like a primarily hispanic fan base so they're not really at least in la yeah yeah i mean necessarily getting these zingers but they were loving it <laughs> then he had like a music business joke it's like and give it up for steve stevens and steve is back so my publishing is cut in half and like oh. the, but they loved it and uh so 
you know, that's, but Billy Idol to me in MTV era was just like, wow. Yeah. Uh, White Wedding Rebel Yell. Just, but bands now don't make videos to support their songs. At least, I mean, I guess YouTube. Yeah, some do. Um, and there's still some really creative ones out there. But the problem is, is before when you had one avenue for it, I mean, it's the same, same problem with radio. When you live in a city and you have a choice of like eight radio stations, chances are you're going to hear the same music your friends are hearing. Right. So when something new comes out, you are all on it. And, and that is a, makes a cohesive scene. But nowadays, when there's so many avenues for great things to come out, it really gets watered down. It gets lost in the shuffle. So, yeah, you know, um, a great video can come out on, on YouTube. But unless, unless you got a marketing team behind it just getting it out to your fans, yeah, it's going to be like a, it's going to be a trophy for you, but uh, it's not going to do what it used to do in the old days. Because, I mean, like you said, there's like, you know, when we were growing up, like if you wanted to go see a concert, you had to go to the concert. Yeah, you had to scalp a ticket, right? Yeah, but you had to like physically leave your home. Yeah. Go to the Forum for me or the Angora Ballroom for you, maybe. Uh, Right, in the Coliseum, the Richmond Coliseum. But now it's like, oh, I can just, uh, you want to go see Kiss, tickets are too expensive or I'll just watch them on Netflix. Yeah, I know. So, uh, or YouTube. Mm. I mean, I certainly watch a lot of music on YouTube now just to, you know, refresh the glory days in my mind. Sure. But, you know, back then there was no YouTube. There was no internet. There was no iTunes. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, there's certain, obviously there's advantages is that, you know, on demand, you can watch anything you want. And, um, but the other problem is, again, you're not watching, you're not getting fed the same thing that everybody else is. I, I now, of course, that's not necessarily a good thing either, because I enjoyed hunting for those those gems, you know, in in strange TV shows or or hearing. Um, I'm talking about music video TV shows or you know, um, like KXLU. You know, it's it's fun. It's it's better when you can hunt and find something. You kind of feel it's like your own, and nobody else's, but. You know, nowadays it's just, it's it's just all anarchy. <laughs> well, yes, the world's going to shit, Jack. But like, I love, I still love, go- like I just saw Weezer at the forum and mm. it was amazing. Like, because uh, you could tell like they're closeted 80s fans of not just like the cars, because I know Rick Ocasek produced some of their earlier oh, albums. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Sweater, uh, the sweater song. Oh my God. It's just, that first Weezer album. Is, to me, it's a lot like the first Cars album. It's just like, wow, this is good. Uh, and they're metal heads because they did like a, a Black Sabbath cover, which is kind of weird to see a band who looks like Weezer, like shredding into a, you know, version of Paranoid. <laughs> uh, they did a cover of Aha's uh, Take On Me. Oh, uh, and Toto. Yeah, they did that song. On Jimmy, uh, and Jimmy they Kimmel. brought, um, when they did the the cover of the Toto song, Africa, the they brought, well, they brought the keyboard player out when they did Jimmy Kimmel from Toto. Yes. But at the forum show, oh. they brought out Weird Al Yankovic. No shit. And he shredded <laughs> on the harmonica. Like, I like Weezer because to me, and you're more qualified to speak to this than I am, Toto, I, 
is one of the greatest bands from a musical proficiency. Sure, right. I mean, when you look at who was in that band, Steve Lukather, uh, Jeff Beccaro, Carl Brothers, like that's a band who knows how to play their instruments. And Weezer's not necessarily known for their uh, musical proficiency. Musical prowess, yeah. But they're good. I mm -hmm. love them. But I'm a Kiss fan, so what the hell do I know? So I kind of thought it was pretty ballsy of them to cover a Toto song, knowing that they're, you know, you know, Rivers is going to be compared to Steve Lukather. Okay, let's see how you measure up. And then uh, I thought it was very funny to see Toto do a cover of Hashpipe. I didn't see that. Oh, it's the best. Like they they released it as a single, but there's a live version where, uh, you know, they more or less were like, okay, well, some band did a cover of our song. We feel it right to do a cover of their song. And we've mm. been smoking hash longer than they've been alive. Mm -hmm. They go right into hash pipe. It's just great to hear a Weezer song played by... Somebody should organize doing that, like hand out covers that another band, they'll do a flip cover on. Oh, I would love that. Like, who's going who's gonna to take on that uh, reign? You are. Yeah, like, I would love to see... I love when a... Like, Weezer did a cover of a Poison song. Podcast. Let's do it. We we could do a cover of uh, I don't know. Well, we have to get prompt. We have to approach prominent bands uh, and say, "Look, we get, there's this idea we're doing. We're going to have you do a cover, which you can pick whichever one you want, and then but that band also has to do a cover of your song." Oh, I would love that. Like some of my favorite Kiss songs were when they did, uh, and then she kissed me. I thought that was their song. Like, <laughs> I, well, I mean, I wasn't the most musically knowledgeable guy. You know, when I was a kid, so I was like, oh, wow, this is a good Kiss song. And I thought New York Groove was, I didn't know Ace could write something like, like that. Like me, yeah. And it's like, oh, he didn't, Earl. Mm -hmm. So, but you've like, it, your engineering work is also something that is amazing to me. Like, you've got a lot of songs that you've engineered, and you were an innovator of sorts because you were like one of the first, if not the first, to... Go solely on a computer. Oh, oh. Um, I guess so. I'm, I'm not sure how it all came about. I, I, I first started using Pro Tools just to edit uh, mixes that um, I didn't have 12 hands to do. So I would, you know, mix a section of it, then have to stop, go back, get the next section set up, and I'd take it to, uh, you know, a studio that had Pro Tools, which is basically maybe four tracks back then. And I'd put the pieces together. Um, but then when they released the 8-track version, I think in 97, um, I just I felt it was natural to st start sticking tracks in there and just start mixing. Of course, the EQs and things, didn't they weren't that great back then. But the advantages you pick up by being able to dice and slice uh, tracks and move them around. Um, yeah, I, and the total recall of it, I mean, this isn't all entertaining to everybody out there, but yeah. But it is though, because I, you know, I have a lot of comics and, and, uh, and people love the comedy talk and, and pro wrestlers I've had on, but like, I uh, think people find it fascinating to know how their favorite music is made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before that I worked, um, at a prominent, uh, prominent studio called Conway and, uh, they had a, what they would, what was Mitsubishi reel to reel 32 tracks on one inch tape 
you know, it's like a $150,000 machine. And then when, when uh, Pro Tools comes out, you know, you, it's just a piece of software with, you know, with an interface. So it was, um, it's such a major shift in uh, technology and, and, you know, it, it changed the way people could uh, not write music, but the way it came out, certainly. I mean, how, like, you know, like to me, I, I just as a, my ears, I don't like the Pro Tools era. Like, like Guns N' Roses uh, album, they did uh, Chinese Democracy. Mm. Uh, you could just tell it was just, it sounded like Axel singing with like 38 different musicians. Like, wow. here's a guitar part here. We'll plug that in with this guy's guitar part. And, uh, you know, it was, you I'd have it, to look that up. I'm not, I don't know whether that was done in, um, with the aid of the computer or not. I, I mean, they to had, my, obviously had the budget. They could link up multiple 24-track machines and, you know, have 72 tracks if they wanted. I mean, I was just so excited because this was their first album. You know, they, let's see, they went Appetite for Destruction, Lies, the EP, and then the two Use Your Illusion albums. And then that was it for like 16 years. Yeah. So when this album was, you know, it had been rumored that it was coming out for like, mm -hmm. you know, a decade. And then it came out. It's like, wow, this just sounds like. Oh, is it? Is that the. Like a is, jam. Is this album. the one we're talking about where they approached uh, Trent Reznor to produce? He might have even had a track on it. Like it's mm. so, such a piecemeal album yeah. to my untrained. I would love to have you listen to it because I'm sure you could. Oh, they, they put, they punched oh. that part in here and uh, kind of. Like Appetite for Destruction, which I'm sure was patched together to a degree, but it just sounded so like, wow, this is five guys in a room. Yeah, well, that was done on analog tape, so. Yeah, no computers on that one. Do you uh, have a preference for how you like to uh, record? Uh, no, no. Um, I, you know, I, sometimes the, the sound of the room might be... Uh, overrated when things are so uh, closely mic'd um no not not really it really just depends on the budget and the project where it could be in a living room it could be in a proper tracking studio uh, yeah now what would you, don rickles do oh, don rickles would probably <laughs> just say fuck it <laughs> this is my uh this is how i, I shift over to this conversation what, no, would, I, what would don say don would be like uh you fucking idiot just hit record and we'll work it out right, right. um uh, but you've also like done stuff with U.S. presidents. Oh, um, like you've done so much. I don't even know where to start and where to end. Like you've worked with bands. I mean, uh, Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, I worked. That's oh, it's. Yeah, it's it's a long story how these please come about, tell it. But, well, I've got so many other things I got to talk about, but. Uh, <laughs> Let's well, see. let's start with Jimmy right, Carter. Jimmy Carter. That right. should be a short story. Yeah. He had a short run. No, I wasn't there to record it. He did a TED talk. Um, but we got uh, his approval to use um, uh, the record label I'm, I'm, I'm working with. I uh, got the, the approval to use his speech in this anti-bullying album that I um, worked on and mastered and did some mixing on. So on, on that specific chunk of of uh jimmy carter i i made some edits and uh you know eq'd it and remastered it that's it and the same thing with barack obama and michelle uh and that one was for us oh, for the same 
No, I'm sorry. The Jimmy Carter was for the United Nations project. I did uh, this 3D set United Nations um, project two years ago. And that's where the Jimmy Carter was on. Uh, and that one, um, I did uh, various mixing and um, pitched a song. I got a song in there next to garbage. Uh, but the, but uh, yeah, the Michelle Obama and Brock uh, did some editing and um, remastering that came out on a album just before he left office. Uh, and it was anti-bullying anti-bullying album now is it because uh obama has kind of a soulful deeper voice jimmy carter has the you know that southern twang <laughs> is it uh does it matter like is it more difficult to work with what's harder to work with a deeper voice or like a southern twang do you have to do anything differently and if there's no music behind it they're all the same right <laughs> there's no difference are you asking because you want to get on a track <laughs> I mean, with yeah. your Barry White voice. Yes. Uh, oh, tell me, you were mentioning a project as I was coming in. You are the dad. Uh, that's my cartoon character right behind you. Oh, this one. This a uh, super fan made that for me. Oh, um, nice. I like the worried eyes. Yeah, well, that's me after twenty years of stand up. Uh, yeah. Uh, but well, it's interesting voice work because Blue I am pimples. the. Uh, I'm the only white guy in the show. It's all African-Americans and me. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, you would think, well, Earl, you're about the whitest guy we can imagine. But uh, due to genetics, my yeah. mom was from Cartersville, Georgia, and most people thought she was black when they spoke with her over the phone. No kidding. And my dad was, uh, I guess, just a basic white guy from Chicago. But it was the... He had a deep voice, so the mixing mm. of their voices has now given me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll use this opportunity. If you need a deep voice, Jack, I'm here for you. Yeah. You got a little bit of swagger into it, too. Well, I grew up a lover of pro wrestling, so I think in my my diction, I speak like a little bit like Ric Flair who, oh. or Rick Rude, who's my favorite, but he's a little lesser known. You have to be a kind of a a real fan and know who Rick Rude is, but he was just, he spoke very, uh, very slow, casual, mm -hmm. uh, authoritarian baritone. He would, you know, call the crowd fat and lazy and they loved it. So, uh, was it, uh, did he have sort of a, he had a an, straight delivery, like a Buster Keaton. Yeah. No very, expression. yeah, he was very, uh, he had a great body. Like he was just a physically just, mm he looked like he was a superhero. So that was his shtick was to take the mic and go, I'd like to tell all you fat, <laughs> lazy. And he would pause to really yeah. get the traumatic effect out of shape. And then he, whatever town he was in, New Jersey swamp hogs to keep the noise down. Mm -hmm. while I show you what the most God gifted body on earth looks like. And then he would take off his robe and he would just, literally do the same speech you know i'd like to tell all you fat jacksonville gators like he would just <laughs> change the city and uh so that's i think i've inherited his um his delivery speech I, I probably would not make a good rock and roll singer because i think uh you'd have to play in a real low tempo for me to 
Well, you know, David Bowie got a low, low range too. I like David Lee Roth because he's always kind of, you know, he's never really, he spoke, he speaks the songs. He does. Yeah. Uh, You know, um, he's got to be the most, one of the most wittiest singers. Uh, I once met him in studio and uh, he's just how you would think he would be. Uh, he's just always has the wittiest comeback. Never even takes a beat. He just uh, just rattle him off the top of his head. Yeah, he uh, he once told my friend who was, uh, and he kind of speaks like in these weird metaphors. Like uh, my friend mm-hmm. was the the drummer in Cinderella, and uh, you know they were having issues in the band, and my friend Fred was thinking of leaving, and you know he thought, oh well, David left Van Halen. Let me or the Van Halen brothers might say they fired him, but yeah. uh, you know, let me ask Dave for advice. And he said, hey, I'm thinking of leaving Cinderella. What can you, what advice can you give me? He's like, you buy the land, you get the Indians. And he just walked off. Like, what the hell's that mean? <laughs> so, but that's, I, that's how I want to, I always want to leave a room. Just leaving with a line and they're scratching their head. Yeah, no. It, gets you, it gives you time to escape. Yeah, because they're thinking, what the hell is he talking mm-hmm. about? And then by the time they figure it out, if they ever do, you're already in your car. Yeah. Or Uber. Uh, now, before we stray too far, uh, you brought up pro wrestling. Um, are you a fan of the Lucha Vavum show that's held a couple times a year at the uh, Mayan? I, it's not that I'm not a fan. Uh, I... You know, I like my wrestling much like I like my music. Uh, 80s. Vicky is trying to get me out of the 80s. Uh, and then the, at least something from the 90s. Uh, I like my wrestling. I don't care if they're the best technical wrestlers. I just want to be entertained. Uh, you know, probably my favorite wrestler of all time. And of course, he's dead. They all die before they're 50. Mm. Um, just through the hard living, huh? Well, you know, I often Life say... Life on the road. Yeah. I mean, uh, but they have to work out. Like stand-up comics and musicians as well. Uh, Don't have to work out. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've known a fair amount of your comrades who've, who've moved on and, and, and passed. I, I mean, I mm. yeah. I was telling Vicky uh, the other night, I've probably known in 20 years of comedy, 10, 10 or so oh, committed yeah. suicide. Uh, uh but pro wrestlers, not only do they have a musician and a comics lifestyle in terms of the travel, but they also have to work out and look good for the yeah. most part. Um, I mean, the Andre the Giant documentary is one of the saddest things you'll ever see, mm. uh, especially in his case because he was so, um, you know, he was a giant. He was seven foot five, 500 pounds. He, you know, of course, they loved him in Japan because, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they loved those freak shows. So for him to travel to Japan was the cruelest thing. He had to fly on a commercial plane. Uh, if he had to go to the bathroom, they literally had to close off the back part of the plane because he couldn't fit in the the toilet. And he had to shit in a oh, bucket. In a bucket, yeah. On the plane. On the plane. So how'd you like to be the guy sitting next to that? <laughs> the back row yeah. oh boy um so i like my uh but my favorite wrestlers uh was this guy by the name of the ultimate warrior and he looked like bon jovi on steroids mm. J- just this body probably my size height wise but 280 pounds uh-huh. 
not an ounce of fat on him. Maybe the worst technical wrestler of all time. Had no moves. He had one move where he would press you over his head, yeah. drop you, and you run around the ring. So he's a lot like the 80s metal bands I love, where, you know, three chords, but with a couple well-placed bombs and explosions. Mm. Like, this is the greatest band I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> wow. Like, you know, you go see... you. you now, you're a sound connoisseur. I'm sure I could play you a Kiss album. Let's say any cut off a of rock and roll over, which is 76, I think. Yeah, I'm sure you would be, oh, this sounds okay. You know, sonically, it's... Kiss had some, uh, some funny sounding records. I kind of feel that Gene was just too cheap to really go the full first class uh, recording uh, that his, you know, the other bands that had um, major record deals, they, you know, there's some amazing sounding records out of the 70s, but I, I feel like Kiss and Paul just cheaped out and said, oh, that's good enough. Let's go to the next one and save money because they, their albums don't all sound that good, the well, early ones. Well, I noticed, the, and once again, I'm, just a fan like mm -hmm. you know my uh, yeah and as a fan i don't care what they sound like oh i don't care you it's know it's the songs it's the songs it's uh it's seeing the the record covers um just for what i do with with uh, my studio work i listen to it and i think uh wow that's a terrible sounding snare drum how could they just walk away with that right like i played uh poison did a an album i don't know maybe about 10 years ago where they you know they i guess they weren't on a record label anymore and uh they just decided to self-produce and self-release mm. their album and uh uh vicky had never heard it and oh. you know seeing that she was their first manager and when they were huge yeah uh i said let me play their last album and uh because you were with them when they were on atlantic records they had you know i can imagine what the production uh Budget, budget yeah of a of a band in the 80s on atlanta records was that had to be like just whatever you need guys mm -hmm. here's the tab sign off and uh i don't know how much this album cost to make 10 years ago but it sounded like it was recorded through a muffler oh no kidding and uh even to my ears it was right. like that drumming sound sounds like he's heading a soggy milk cart mm -hmm. uh but and i would so and she was like yeah this is well i won't say what she said but like, i don't know she was a fan of their recording process uh but i would imagine like it must be can you find enjoyment listening to like a record because you're such a, a audiophile like i imagine it's like when i i have trouble watching comedy because i'm such a okay this joke should have been told this way oh the timing yeah i mean can you listen to music oh, oh definitely yeah i can compartmentalize I, I still have that childhood enthusiasm for as being a fan, uh, which is why I do this crazy project that I do. Teenage werewolves. Yeah, it's because it's I, I still I still enjoy music that much that I can just you know take off my whatever audiophile ears and just listen to it for fun. So, um, and by the way, a, a little wrestling tie-in. We do we do one song uh, called "The Crusher." And the song is about wrestling moves uh, the Cramps wrote. And uh, we have uh, my two showgirls come out with uh, Lucha, Cape, and Mask and do a full-on wrestling match right there. on. The, on oh, the really? Yeah, 
right when we're doing the song. Now, tomorrow's show is sold out, correct? Yeah, uh, yes. But just in case someone wanted to sneak mm. in. Somebody just, with a deep voice. Listen. Just in case. Now I sound like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, where is it tomorrow night? Uh, tomorrow is at Golden Road Brewery, which is... Um, it's LA's largest craft brewery, and uh, it was it ended up being bought out by Anheuser Busch, but they kept it um, as it was. It's it's really a cool place, and the people who run it are are just uh, really really cool. And they 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 keep it cool. Hell, they they hired us, so I don't even know how that came about. Um, so this is what is it in West Glendale? It's like North Atwater, across the Five Freeway from the LA Zoo. Uh, it's a big sort of compound they have a really massive uh space there so anyway they're setting up a really great stage uh in the sort of the the outdoor area of it and is there like an opening band or is it just you guys um they did add an opening band called moving parts moving units moving units um but we yeah we go on last it's gonna be a um late show eleven thirty. is when we go go on it'll be uh halloween will be in its full uh height of wackiness yeah yeah it is and um you know i usually uh, come back to do these shows during the halloween time uh and again another double-edged sword is that there, there's so much going on it's really competitive oh it's you know, there's crazy. so many so many events um and so even when i'm on booking shows i gotta i gotta book them six months at least six months out you know, to try, cause I got to like connect the dots and keep things. Uh, I can't do two shows in Hollywood because then the, you know, I'm pulling apart the audience. They'll only come to one show, not the other one. So I got to, you know, book it. So it's in different, um, regions of, of LA, but anyway, um, yeah, Halloween. We, this is our third Halloween show, uh, this, this time around, uh, we did one at the Monty show or at the Monty bar on Friday. How'd that go? Oh, it went. Oh, I'll show you how it went. You, do you see this bruise on her? Oh, arm? Jesus. <laughs> Didn't mean to scare you. No, it's all good. Listen, um, I've had a lot worse imagery on this couch. I was jumping off the uh, back of a booth uh, in the middle of a song, and I, I, was, I was yelling at my showgirl, uh, Sarah, saying, Sarah, get out of the way. I got to jump. There's no graceful way of getting down. And it, was, right. it was pretty much the last song. And uh, she wasn't moving, so I thought, all right, I'm going to jump in this uh, two-foot little square because I don't know if, if you've ever seen a show at the Monty Bar, but they basically just take out one big booth, and that's your stage. Right. And uh, we, you know, another, we had another capacity crowd. Um, so I'm, I need to jump down because uh, I've been up there long enough, and I, I landed on one of my set lists. My boot <laughs> kicked out from underneath me, and my arm came down on the standing uh, floor tom rim the rim of the floor tom so anyway i got this um you can't see it on on the podcast but uh yeah it's, it's nice can, nice though, blue oh because we're gonna go and f i'm gonna give you the close-up oh, facebook right. live close-up here see this or not it was great earlier when it was purple and blue but now it's just red yeah 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 that so shows anyway. you what us performers go through to entertain our fans uh, yeah, we've had, um, it's not, it's not fun unless there's one injury at some point or another in the, in the show. Now, speaking of injuries, I know you've mm -hmm. had to, uh, 
you know, for you, now I'm going to lose some of the uh, out-of-towners, but for you local people, you will know the club makeup was legendary in the L.A. club scene. Yeah. And you were instrumental there. I did most of them. I mean, you must have some pretty wild stories from club makeup. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like one of the only straight performers there. It's just, you know, mixed in with all these, all these drag queens um, who were just funny as hell. Um, and some really great voices in there too. But, you know, the, the basic premises of Club Make was uh, you'd get uh, your song for the show and you would have to make it as over top, over the top as you possibly could with whatever bells and whistles you could do, whether it was, uh, you know, one time I had 25 people on stage for the song Time from Bowie. And I did this whole sort of uh, turn of the century circus. So I had all, all my friends, I, I, I gave them a, a role in a circus, whether it was a tightrope walker or the strong man. And I, I had 25 people up there. Um, but we were all just kind of trying to one up everybody, each other, the performers. Which is tough to do at club makeup. I mean, it, it's like. Yeah. And that was, that was the, the beauty of it was that you had this amazing all-star band from, you know, rotating members of different other cool bands. Um, and these uh, just outlandish uh, solo performers would be singing. And um, uh, there was a couple shows on E! Entertainment. Uh, they dedicated like two separate one-hour specials about the, the club. Um, one of them was done in Vegas, one done here at the El Rey Theater. Um, and so I, I met some of my uh, friends outside of LA who have seen that show and, and bring it up every once in a while. Oh. So it, it, the, and we were, you know, talking about taking on the road, which I still th think it would have been a great idea. You know, it would have been, it just would have been ex expensive to take all those people on the road. But at the time, you know, we had, um, uh, because of the entertainment show, there's so many cities around the, the country were requesting it. Yeah. It could have, should have, but yeah, crazy stories. Um, before you start in these crazy stories, this yeah. is where we stop the Facebook live. Oh, okay. The, so if you want to hear the these crazy are, stories, oh, you got it down. <laughs> I mean, not really, Jack, but I'm yeah. doing my best. Is One it, man show. This is what they call a teaser. Mm. If you want to hear Jack's crazy stories about club makeup, which I'm assuring you, you will. You got to listen to the rest on iTunes. So Jack, where can people find you online, social media? Oh, the easiest one. Just look up Teenage Werewolves. And JackAtlantis.com for yeah. all relevant info. Yeah, for, for stuff that just pertains to me. Uh, if it's the band, just, you know, we're on Instagram and Facebook and all that. Teenage, Teenage Werewolves. I'll post Werewolves. all links, guys. Uh, yeah. We're going to end it now. And Jack, I want you to start your wildest club makeup oh, story. Man, don't pull me. I, I It's too late, Jack. You're in too deep now. <laughs> In five seconds, uh -huh. five, four, three, five. go. So, so this is not the craziest one. Let me, as, I, as I'm singing this one, I'll, I'll come up with some other ones. Uh, but, and, you know, they, they have to do with sex in the bathroom and this and that, but. Um, well, don't gloss over that. <laughs> 
I'm trying to get numbers, Jack. <laughs> Let's hear about the sex in the bathroom. Well, you could change the names to protect the innocent. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Jack Atlantis will now be Mac uh, Babantis. Mac Babantis. <laughs> uh, let me come back to that story. Well, th- some of them um, in- involved me just getting to the show. Uh, I was living in Silver Lake at the time, and I would be, you know, I, we'd go on at midnight, and um, I would come, I'd have all these props and things i'm still working on it like half hour to midnight and uh so so many times i'd be burning down um wilshire boulevard you know going through lights doing 70 pull up to the the, the valet and and just throw my keys and just get in there um uh shoot i don't know um but describe the crowd i mean the crowd is um yeah it, it's been um compared a lot to the studio 54 days where it was um you had straight gay it was just uh, a whole hodgepodge of androgyny and uh, you know celebs and you know uh goths rockers punks club kids uh really all came together in, in one crazy once a month uh show that ran for about just about four years um and yeah, Joe, Joseph Brooks uh, started with uh, Pat Briggs from New York, who didn't last long, um, just about a year, and then uh, Joseph continued it on. So, but um, yeah, it's, uh, one night we had the cult there. They they took over. They did a uh, uh, full set, and you'd have other performers there, like um, from uh, from the Go Go's uh, or. Um, God, you know, I, I wish I had a ready-made list. I, I know I'm I'm forgetting them all, and it's just from too much. No, I don't want a ready-made list. This is what people yeah. like, Jack. Well, you know, I, I got to get this all out in this interview, and, I, and I'm losing it right now. I, I'm drawing some blanks. Well, but, let me uh, see. I mean, I see, I mean, uh, the call, uh, maybe, uh, because you've worked, I mean, I know not necessarily a club makeup, but like, you know, Billy Idol, did he pop in? I don't think Billy did. Because it seems like a place he would. Oh, he might have. Yeah, he might have come in there. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't on stage. But um, um, I mean, the cult's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, they did the whole show. Because that's a great. Uh, if you have never been to the El Rey, it's one of the great music venues. Oh still, yeah, still left in L.A. Yeah, the Stones. They they played there just a few years ago. Uh, it's it's an amazing room, a 1920s ballroom um great acoustics yeah and i was thinking i was just talking to a friend of mine the other day on on how this really how we got away with so many things there i mean i i had uh backup singers that were underage we'd sneak them in back back behind the doors and uh uh the owner uh i forget his name right now it's an australian guy uh but he he and joseph brooks uh they just had a, a great working relationship where you know, I, I once had fire on stage um, and, you know, just doing things that you shouldn't be doing that we, we got away with doing there because um, the owner sort of had a hands-off approach when it came to our night. He knew that Joseph in the end would take care of, of things if things went wrong, but, um, you know, nothing that ever cost that much money. There's not, not a lot of damage or fines, you know, and, and that was, you know, a different time period too. I mean, Maybe nowadays you, uh, oh, I know you couldn't get away with those things, but 
Well, uh, the restrictions five, right? weren't, were, they were a little looser back then. Or well, people would, turned the other way. They turned the, you know, they looked the other way when these things were going on. Well, my God, in the, uh, I mean, when I started going to clubs in the 80s, it's just like, wow, this is this legal? Like, uh, mm. you know, just so many, yeah, you could definitely tell, I don't know if cops were paid off, but uh, or fire marshals, you know, would, you'd walk into a room and go, this is over capacity. Yeah, yeah. I think this is, uh, but, you know, I guess through, uh, I guess it depends on the neighborhood you're in. It seemed like, you know, uh, like the El Rey is in kind of a, a good spot neighborhood-wise. It's not really, it's right on Wilshire, so it's mm. not really directly, although there's residential area right behind it, I don't think they're going to burn too many bridges with the shenanigans that could happen. Uh, whereas like other clubs or, you know, like the Starwood, which was. Oh, the infamous Starwood. Which, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with the guy who used to own that, the, the, Eddie Nash, uh, you know, because he had his fingers in gay clubs, rock clubs, strip clubs, mm. I mean, whatever made money. Uh -huh. and uh, He was the it man back then. Yeah, I mean, it, it it really got a great story. Oh, he just came came here from Pakistan, owned a hot dog cart. No kidding. And uh, then started... Uh, so Nash was short for a longer name, possibly? Yeah, his... Uh, I'd have to... Uh, it, it, it's a crazy, yeah. like, Arab-sounding name. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and then started... Uh, became the number one cocaine dealer uh, in the West Coast. And, you know... Seen the movie Boogie Nights? Yeah. Uh, you know, the Alfred Molina character, you know, that they rob. Uh, that's basically Eddie no Nash. No kidding. Yeah. I don't know why they just didn't call him Eddie Nash. Uh, and then, of course, the Wonderland movie was a little more. Mm. Okay. Eric Bogosian was, this is Eddie Nash. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, but he, you talk about the wild nightclub days. He, he owned a club on beverly and la Cienega called the odyssey which was uh i remember hearing about that not, not it was an all-ages club uh, so mm -hmm. i say there's probably some underage people roaming around there yeah and uh then one day it just mysteriously burned down oh don't they all yeah <laughs> uh and then he had the same situation he had a club in the valley it was all ages and then just one day just mysteriously caught fire oh uh do you remember the name of that one I think that's the one Beastie Boys played at. One of the show. Is that a, 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 it's like on Sherman Way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. it. I, it's like pa not pa something along the lines of passages or like something like that. Yeah. Uh, I know that's not it, but uh, you know, it's like we were talking about MTV earlier. Like people don't, you don't really get clubs like that now. Like you know, I remember Spice on Hollywood Boulevard and. Uh, you know, Garden of Eden on the Brea in Hollywood. Uh -huh. like, I don't know of any clubs like in this uh, era. And it's kind of like, once again, I feel so old saying, oh, if you were around back in the day, but <laughs> uh, like, there's no nightclubs anymore. There's no scene. Like, yeah, well, the scene, yeah. I, and I think that has a little to do with there's so many avenues now. Like, yeah. Like I said, there's not just your your local radio station or just MTV, but there's just so many of them now. And so people are are being turned on by different things, not at the same time. And they're never coming together and say, did you hear this? Right. Because I just heard it last night. It doesn't, doesn't happen like that anymore. Yeah, I mean, even like 
was CDs. I love. I used to love going to Tower Records. You know, looking for the new, I don't know, David Lee Ross CD or whatever, Cars, getting that CD, touching it, you know, looking at the pictures. Now you just go on iTunes, click buy, and you don't really get the artwork. You, just, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, six minutes later, you get the songs. and I mean, it still sounds good, I guess, but, you know, or, you know, if you wanted to go out with a girl or a guy, whatever you're uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. preferences. Uh, you had to go out. Yeah. Now you can just hey, you want to come over and watch Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, have a know. turkey leg. Yeah. <laughs> um, even like cause the I romance is gone. Well, I mean, I guess it's easier to get laid <laughs> with a turkey leg and Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Grubhub and. Uh, you know, there's Netflix and chill, or uh, I like to uh, HBO and go mm -hmm. beat it. I'm just kidding. Uh, but even like with shopping, it, it's like, because I know you're also heavily involved in the fashion. Well, uh, I used to be, yeah. Um, in fact, I had a store right up the, right up the street, uh, 8912 Sunset, between the Hustler building and the gas station right there. Well, I love that gas station. <laughs> Do you, what is it the hot dogs you love what is it about it you love well no they it's it's really the only gas station around here open late night yeah so like uh i i'll go there typically after the comedy store and it's almost like a nightclub there because it's you know sunset now shuts down so early mm. uh that it's really the only place to go get uh food or like i'm an energy drink guy uh, and so I'll go there at three in the morning and I'll see Ron Jeremy trying to pick up chicks, yeah. which is kind of sad, but you know, everybody has a Ron Jeremy story who lives in. Oh, I, I'm, I wanted him on this podcast. And so I finally built up the nerve to, Hey, Mr. Jeremy, do you want to come on a podcast? And mm -hmm. he just looks at me and goes, what's a podcast? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you though. Big fan though. Mm. Even though I, I don't watch porn, looks like I produce it, but uh, uh, yeah, it's really the only thing that's open late night on, on Sunset, which is kind of sad. That gas station. So where were so you you so you were in that because now there's like a it's an exotic car rental yeah. place. Yeah, that was your store. Yeah, for about nine months. Uh, it's. I mean, uh, and I, I, I can make this long story quick. Please, uh, no, please. My, uh, my ex and I, we had a clothing label. We started around um, 2000 or 2001 and uh, started from scratch and, uh, you know, found the right stylist to work with and uh, made the right connections and took on the right collaborations. And, uh, you know, next thing we know, we're doing uh, LA fashion week and the whole shebang. And, um, we did a costume design for films or uh, like Paul Mitchell fashion show, uh, hair show in Vegas and just, uh, you know, really cool, cool collaborations. And we had, you know, some celebrity clientele. And um, Can you say who? Uh, let's see. Well, uh, Jessica Alba, Steven Tyler and um, 
I'm forgetting. Because I love Steven Tyler's fashion sense. Like, I'm being completely serious, but I like that. Not all of them, but yeah, some of them. Well, I mean, some of them, he looks like B. Arthur (laughs) back in the day. Golden girl. Uh, Yeah, actually, I had um, made myself a suit for one of the makeup shows. um, And we had an opportunity to dress him for the uh, Grammys. Uh, who's giving out an award with B.B. Um, King going to make a stage entrance. So uh, our stylist pulled a bunch of our clothes and one of them I said, uh, well, maybe he'll fit this suit. Just give him that and see what happens. And he ended up picking a few items um, to purchase, but this, the thing he wore out on the stage was my suit and he ended up buying that. Uh, so um, I had to make another one and uh, he bought some other, other uh, items from us. Um, so anyway, long story short, this, the store, um, came about, we, we were either going to, after the fashion show, we were, uh, approached by, a, a Bergdorf Goodman in New York to, uh, carry our line, but it would have required so much capital that we didn't have to produce all the, all the pieces that they wanted. Uh, we, we thought, uh, well, we, and we didn't want to be a, a slave to just, uh, a couple pieces and we wouldn't have control. Right. So we, we went the other route and thought, let's just open up our own boutique. We'll do it here locally. Uh, let's find financial investors, which ended up turning out to be um, my partner's family members. So there's that adage, you know, uh, <laughs> don't go into business with family or friends. And, you know, that that's what happened to us. So anyway, it's, it started off great. Uh, we spent, we spent like six months looking for just the right location, ended up being that one uh, right there. I felt it was like the perfect, it was perfect proximity from sort of the slightly up on sunset with right. all the other designers and the tie in with uh, the whiskey. Cause the stuff we would do was, was uh, it was high couture, but also very rock, rock and roll edge. Um, so it just, it was the perfect space. Uh, we spent uh, like six months redoing the in- in the inside. We built a second story inside of it. Um, a whole interior. Um, we spent so much time on the faux finishes. Anyway, it's a long story. <laughs> and uh, about a, a month before we're about to open, we uh, also clothed uh, Prince for the Super Bowl halftime show. So we had all this great support. He was going to come in and do a private uh walk through the store, you know, on off hours. Uh, we were going to get a ribbon ceremony cutting from uh, mayor of West Hollywood. I mean, everything was going great. Uh, but our, our financial <laughs> investors, they wanted a, a bigger chunk of the, the pie. And we had already gone to uh, our lawyers three times now to renegotiate. And we just weren't going to do it anymore. We felt they had us over a barrel, you know. they right. We're getting so close to opening and it's gonna be, uh, you know, it's, it's gonna be really major. Uh, but they wanted to; they were gonna hold this hostage uh, for a, a larger percentage in the LLC, and we just didn't want to give it to them for the third time, so we said no. And uh, and they they stood their ground, and they said, "Well, we're gonna give the store up. We're gonna give it to somebody else. We're gonna sublease it." And we had a five year lease that we had had on this place, so they were gonna sublease it. Anyway, um, which I think they did it originally to a tanning salon. Oh yeah, it's been it, yeah, it turned into a tanning salon, I believe, after after we left. And then now it's. But the, we we weren't going to leave after all that interior design we did. 
so we had some close friends come in with us one day and we uh they locked us out of the store our financial uh partners locked us out so we had a, a locksmith come and break us in one night uh, i put up a sort of a, a mask on all the glass so you couldn't see what was going on just in case you know yeah. somebody drove by because what we did was we went in and we we took off uh all the the great pieces we put up and we just whitewashed the whole place it was such a sad 12 hours it took us to do that you know after just months and months of um just fine-tuning the look uh, we were gonna it i can't even get into it but we watched we watched the whole thing we this had, is therapy oh you know i've said i've told this story before to uh to, to friends and at, at this point it's like ah it's um yeah you know it, it 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 doesn't really hurt anymore it's just part of my past uh but that was uh that was one of the one of those regretful periods right um, and then she and I, we lasted maybe another year after that. And then we split, we went separate ways. I hear you. Uh, so yeah, the store. Um, but that's uh, like, for those of you, like, uh, you know, that area we're talking about on Sunset is like, you know, I've done a comedy gone. show at the Hustler store. I know where that did area you? is. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's one of my first shows I ever did. No kidding. 20 years ago or whatever it was. I'll just never forget the guys like, "Hey Earl, it's a clean show." <laughs> at the hustler, at the hustler, building. and there's literally a sign for anal gangbangs half oh, off. Shit. Wow! On stage, I'm like, "You got to be kidding, Johnny!" <laughs> so, uh, so you know where that area of Sunset is? That's, I mean, you'd think a clothing store would kill it in that area. Yeah, uh, especially you know, a rock and roll. Not that it was uh, rock and roll style fashion. Um, yeah, it had some tendencies towards that because um, we had also worked with uh, um, there was a store called Mink Vox just up the street. And um, anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. I love it, that, Jack. This podcast should be called the Tangent Podcast because I set people tangent, off. Tangent Tangerine. That's what happens when you don't have. Set. You make them cry. Well, Vicky was like, Earl, here's Jack's website so you can research. Uh, I'm like, I do a minimal amount of research. Yeah. You keep it fresh. Keep it live. It, it, you know. Organic is the word. Right. I, I like it like this. Some people uh, are much more structured than I am. Well, Jack, mm. tell us about working with Prince. And okay, well, how about Steven Tyler? And like, I, I just, yeah. I don't do it like that. It's not for everyone, but. You know, it, it's being in the, I mean, you have many songs recorded. I'm sure you've worked with various musicians, some incredibly structured. Like Prince, I know you didn't work with him in the studio, but he strikes mm. me as someone who would have been incredibly structured. Like we're going to do this here, 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 and here. And then you take, say, someone like David Lee Roth, who strikes me as the yeah. type that would just come in and go, ah, fuck Fly it. What are we? See the pants, right? Yeah, what are we going to do, Jack? What it, do you need me right now? <laughs> yeah. You want me to call Eddie? So, uh, you know, I always tell people, if you don't like how I do my podcast, start your own. Do it how you want to do mm -hmm. it. Uh, but your history is such that, like, you know, most people I have on are really known for one thing, either comedy, pro wrestling. I mean, you're... Not many people I've had on this couch of engineer, musician, scored movies, fashion 
I mean, so I, you know, you are the perfect guest for me to go all over the board with. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what makes life fun for me is, uh, not just doing one thing. Um, but you know, getting to see new places, work with new people. And, um, I think it, it keeps you young. Yeah. And like, uh, I mean, like I'm a one tool guy. I love doing comedy and I guess you'd say voiceovers is a second tool, but like, do you, like, I love performing. I don't know if I would ever be a good behind the scenes, like, Hey Earl, would you produce this guy or girl's comedy album? Cause I want to do it. Yeah. Oh, you know, by the way, I have to ask you a question, please. What do you do when a guest, you have a guest on and they got to take a massive piss? What do you do? I'm going to show you what I do, Jack. Where does the audience go? I respect you so much. Am I going to take the microphone in the... In the no, no, no. There. This is the 255th episode of Inappropriate Earl. Yeah. I have paused this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. You're not really, are you? Three okay. times. Oh, no shit. One for Noelle Leone, who's uh-huh. an Instagram model with 44 double D uh-huh. knockers. Uh-huh. I'm in good company. You are. So I. this is halftime of the Jack Atlantis episode. <laughs> I'm going to, we're going to pause it okay. and then we're going to get back into engineering. So Jack's going to urinate. No, don't. That's the closet. Please don't go there. I got to go quick. I'm, I'm going to go anywhere. Go right there. That's the bathroom. It's clean for you. We're going to pause it right now. We'll be back, as Chuck Woolery would say, in two and two. Okay, we are back after a bathroom break. Now, I'm not going to throw Jack under the bus. I also went to the bathroom as well because of my massive consumption of energy drinks. <laughs> now, and, and I made history on your show. You well, are, I'm in the top three, I guess. Well, you're top with Noel Leone. Yeah. Who has over a million Instagram followers. So we're all just living in her world. I, yeah, I've met her a few times out in the scene. <laughs> She's like everyone. She's like Angeline. You like she is, yeah. You know her, but you don't know her. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, but she is uh, now. uh, You know, speaking of Noel, a lot of people, Earl. Why did you have an Instagram model on? I mean, what the hell could you possibly talk about with an Instagram model? But as someone who's been on the scene a long time, Mm. uh, how do you think social media has changed the scape of what we all do? Like whether it be bands, fashion designers, like I'm a John Varvatos guy. Mm -hmm. He has a great social media, like campaign, Twitter, Instagram. Has it changed how you view the business? Like, do you look at yourself and go, I have to be, have a higher profile on Instagram? Well, yeah. I mean, that, that goes with the territory. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Instagram, I was, I was avoiding for the longest time until I had to, you know, cave into doing it. Um, just because there's, just, there's not much time in life to do all these things. And once you commit to doing something like jumping on Instagram, you have to keep feeding it. It's like a plant. You've got to keep watering it. <laughs> if you don't, then, you know, you're going to start all over again. So, um, uh, well, it's that, you know, I keep saying it's a double-edged sword. Um, it, it, it changed, you know, how we, how we conduct business. I mean, that obviously has a lot of advantages. You know, I, I only advertise the shows just through, you know, 
Facebook and Instagram. I, I don't print anything anymore. Sometimes I will for, you know, the inside the marquee of the venue. Oh, sure. Just so they can have one. But, you know, there's no more leg work. There's only finger work. Let your fingers do the walking, so to speak. And, um, you know, a bunch of mouse clicks later. So, yeah, it, you know, it takes the, uh, it's, it's, in one way it becomes very impersonal. Which I don't like. Like right. I like. Yeah, I don't uh, like that either, that, that aspect. You know, once again, I'll mention Vicki Hamilton. Yeah. When she was managing Poison, she always tells the stories of they literally had to go out on Sunset. Yeah. Put flyers up on the pole. They would, like, Ricky and Bobby would take, say, Crescent Heights to mm. La Cienega and, and Brett and uh, Cece. Well, I don't know if Cece did much, uh, but <laughs> they would set him on Doheny. I don't know where he went, but they would, and then they would have to double back because Warrant would put their flyers over uh, their over flyers. And, yeah. and nowadays it's, it's no flyering, just Instagram. Hey, Jack Atlantis. Teenage- sometimes you get, <laughs> sometimes there will be people that, that, do territorial pissings on your on your your stuff, your promo, um, like a warrant flyer over top of a poison flyer. And, you know, nowadays, you know, I've I think I've got this one band that do. A, I'm not going to mention the name, but I don't want to give them publicity, right? <laughs> but they they seem to follow you know our our publicity and uh, put in like a comment like, well, you should check out our band because our band does this and that, you know, and. Yeah, uh, it's like you know, I I do all this work. Um, I'm not obviously not doing it for the money. <laughs> There's not much money in this. I'm with you um, in that. I'm boat. doing it for the fucking fun, you know. And everybody has a great time. And but that means I had to take a lot of risks, you know, financially sometimes. My time, which you can't recover. The best, you know, the most expensive commodity in life is time. Yeah. You know, I I give a lot of time to this, and so. Yeah, you know, I figure if, if you know you don't want to do that to somebody else's uh, product by taking the cheap route, the short route, and uh, they even their name is just like our name too. It's right. like of all the, the of all the, the the song titles you could come up with for a band name, you know why why use part of ours? You know we we've been doing this since two thousand and ten, so obviously they they've known us sure because they're a, an LA version also. But anyway, I I don't bother writing them. I just let them do what they want to do. I, we're getting the the good gigs. So that's that's all. That's all that matters. Oh, I mean, I get it. You know, the same thing with this podcast. You know, mm. like I was telling you before we started, someone reported yeah, me for right. a music violation, which uh, you know has caused me to temporarily be off the iTunes charge because iTunes is you know obviously they take copyright issues very seriously as they should. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're not ruffling feathers, if you don't have any enemies, I guess you're not doing that well. But the fact that you do, or if I have, you know, issues with, you know, people, I, it's that's just take it all in stride. What are you going to do? It just means that. I mean, yeah, it's like I, bad press is good press. It's. Well, I figure if you have people who are uh, jealous, or I guess jealous is the right word of what you're doing, you're doing something right. Like if no one cares about what you're doing, that's when. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Right. You know, I think Paul Stanley had uh, the best quote. Uh, you know, he's like, "When people stop wanting to interview me, then I'll be worried." Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> you know, so, uh, but it just, you know, I'm a, I think I can just tell you, you and I are very similar personality wise. We're straight shooters. And, uh, so I just, uh, there's a bullshit side of our business that I don't necessarily enjoy. Uh, yeah, I'd rather bypass it. Sometimes it's not the quickest route, but, um, but I'm probably living in a dream world to believe that in either in music or comedy, you're not going to run into bullshit. Like, well, you, you, you keep your integrity and those around that count, they'll notice that they'll notice the, your in, integral direction of, of going where you're going. Well, my problem, Jack, is I hold grudges. So, Oh, now we're talking. Yeah. Why is that? You know, uh, goes back to childhood. Yeah, you know, probably does. I just, <laughs> uh, I believe in the, you know, my parents were, uh, slightly strange in how, uh, they raised me and my brothers and sisters. But, uh, one thing they instilled in me was treat everyone the same. Mm -hmm. We all shit out of the same hole. My mom actually said that to me. Did she? She also said to me at the age of like 12 or 13, Earl, be nice to everyone because there's always someone with a bigger dick in the room. She didn't say yeah. that. <laughs> and I took that literally. So when I was like 15, I would look at everyone's crotch in the room going, does he have a bigger dick than me? Does he have a... Now I, I look back and go, okay, like... You know, he does have a bigger dick. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Lexington Steel, <laughs> that guy's hog is enormous. Uh, but now I look back and, and, you know, you should treat everyone the same. If Bill Gates was in this room to a guy who doesn't know how to operate a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't know which... If you looked at Bill Gates on physical appearance, you'd be like, oh, look at this fucking loser. And yet he's probably the richest guy on the planet. Yeah, I, you know, I, w I wish Bill would uh, get a stylist. He needs you. Yeah, I could be a stylist, right? Well, I, I've always been fascinated with style. You know, like I said, most of the bands I like were known more for their style than their necessary uh, musicianship skills. Although sometimes, like a guy like Billy Idol and Steve Stevens were a good mixture of like the presentation and the skills. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kiss, you might say, skewed towards <laughs> the style sure uh but not horrible musicians uh and speaking of which what do you do because i know like uh i'm always fascinated by the recording process and i know uh, bob ezrin and eddie kramer would talk about how hard it was to work with kiss because peter chris couldn't really uh play the same stuff twice mm. uh do you, how do you work with a, I mean, I'm sure you've worked with popular artists who maybe weren't the greatest musicians. How, how, do you bring in studio guys or girls? Uh, like, is it hard to work with someone who, you know, they're going to have a hit record, but like, you got to make the fucking record. Well, you know, nowadays that's where the computer comes right. in. Good old pro tools. Yeah, if you if you give it the time, you can you can make anybody sound great. You know, of course, you don't want to have to do that. Um, but it's uh, if you just can't get somebody to if you can't if a drummer is not locked in a timing, um, 
it's going to be quicker to do it in the computer just to tighten some things up. And I'm not talking about making it drum machine like. Like, I don't really like using auto-tune. I don't really believe in it. Like, if a singer, if the singer can't sing, then they're not a singer. I mean, if they can't hold pitch. Sure, there's some things you could fix uh, if it's just one thing and a great take. You know, I, I might adjust one note. But, you know, nowadays, uh, so many singers are just run through it the whole way through. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. I kind of feel that sub, subliminally, we, our ears are trained to, to appreciate those, those human mistakes in singing. It, I like it, that. It create, it, in our, yeah, it, it, uh, it makes it sound, well, organic, like you mentioned earlier, um, and real. So, I, you know, maybe this is a, a long trend of auto-tune that we might be phased out. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. It's been around for so long now already. Um, but you know, keeping it real, I'd rather just have some mistakes, keep them in, uh, than to sterilize it. Like I'll give you a wacky example. Like let's say uh, you're approached to uh, do a, a Queen tribute record, and someone. Uh, Comes up to you. We're going to have David Lee Roth, who's not known necessarily for his singing voice. We're going to have him cover uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a fairly complicated song yeah. to cover just because you're covering Freddie Mercury's right. vocals. W would you sit down with David Lee Roth and map out a, maybe a game plan, or would you just record a song with him and then when he leaves, maybe uh, start turning the knobs? <laughs> Um, well, what I, what I like to do and, and what's generally typically done is, uh, have a singer sing the track multiple times, not always straight through, but maybe just focus on the verse, sing it five times, um, the chorus, and then you can go through and make a comp where you, you take, this was a great section here. Uh, this, this sentence was perfect. Let's move that. And you, you create a sort of a best of list. Now, if you don't get it with that best of list, then you got to go in and... With the knobs. Well, no, I, I would go in with the singer. I'd say, let's sing this like this, because we don't have it in the comp. We don't have it in the greatest hits. And how do you say that to them without... I mean, when you're working with the people you've worked with, I'm sure there's some egos involved. And like, do you... You know, surprisingly uh, not suggest hey do you would you mind coming in to uh maybe give us another version yeah uh no actually it's surprisingly not there there's not uh, there's not a, a large issue with egos because we're all there on the same we're we want the same goal and make it sound great and uh so when we're all behind the scenes i think that's why people can drop their ego if we we're doing it in front of an audience, like saying, re-sing that part, you know, if we're recording this in front of people, that would be one thing. But, you know, all this is done just, you know, it's all behind the scenes. And I haven't really had an issue with uh, with really any musician or singer, you know, if, if I make a suggestion. Um, I mean, maybe it helps with singers because I'm also a singer. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're more apt to take an, an idea. Right. Um, so... You know, I've, I've been fortunate in that, that uh, nobody gives me any pushback with that. 
What's your favorite genre of music to engineer and record? Because you've like you've done so many. Like, do you have one where you're like, oh, it's a metal record or a pop record or a punk record? Yeah. Um, the short answer is I I love them all because I, I don't love want the, the challenge. Short answer. The the other answer, the answer you're looking for is uh, I I I hear things in multiple layers. Uh, I love listening to records that have so many layers of production in them. And I'm not talking about uh, like what you're mentioning in Chinese democracy. Right. Which I liked as a record. Yeah. I mean, you can obviously take it too far, but I'm talking about, um, you know, in this one section, it, it, you know, this one three second section of, this, of the song, there's this one little sound that pops through. It only happens one time. You know, those little details I love. So I try to... Uh, focus on finding little gems that I can just bump up in the mix and then tie it to leapfrog it to the next little cool thing. And they're probably happening on multiple different tracks. It could be a drum. It could be something happens on the Tom and then the, the bass player does something really cool or a cool mistake. Uh, and uh, just when I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm listening for those. I'm listening with the microscope and I'm trying to find uh, the things that have that bring the song character, and when I find it, I just you know try to solo it uh, and, and feature it. So that's that's my favorite uh, style uh, of mixing. Would be I guess the bands that can allow me to have enough going on to find those gems in the mixes. But then I you know then I need to do something else. I I want to keep it simple and just do a you know mix just a punk band. Uh, and I've I've done like. Uh, Punjabi rap, I've uh, you know uh, Persian music, all sorts of mariachi. I did a mariachi record for this band in in uh, Albuquerque. Um, I just I really love mixing it up, right? Because it's a fresh. challenge. It's a challenge for me to make uh, this genre of music, which I'm not that proficient as a fan of, right? Uh, but hear it as the audience hear it as an audience member and what would I want, how would I want that ear candy to sound? I, I try to give whatever genre of music I'm, I'm working with a sort of a, you know, an ear candy appeal because the songs are going to be great on their own, but uh, you can do so much more with the mix to make it. People want to listen to it again and again and right. hear something new that they didn't hear the first time. Can a song or a record be too polished? Um, well, polished, yeah, but that's why I I sometimes keep the mistakes in, right? Keep those unusual things, a blue note or something that maybe other people would get, you know, whitewash. Uh, those that's or a you know a note that's just slightly sharper or a you know, singer uh, flat. Uh, keeping those gives it character. Because I know we've talked about Kiss a lot. Like that's why I kind of glommed on to Kiss in the early days because I thought even though some of their early records maybe sonically weren't right. um, the greatest sounding, there was a charm to them. Like a, Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, whereas like in the mid-80s when they were, I think, uh, and I think they've even admitted to this, were kind of chasing Bon Jovi and... Loud, want to hear right. it loud, right yeah. between... You talking about that time period? Well, I, that was done by Michael James Jackson, who was a legendary uh, producer. That was uh, Creatures of the Night. Mm -hmm. I love it loud. Uh, and then, uh, but they, I remember they brought in uh, Ron Nevison, who was uh, 
known for uh, producing Zeppelin and uh, Heart. He did Heart's like big comeback album. Mm -hmm. And Kiss really wanted him for their album Crazy Nights. Ah. Uh, and Crazy Nights is one of them, probably the most polished sounding Kiss album you've ever. It's like there's not one note that's out of place. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's not Kiss. Like I don't. Right. And, and Kiss is one of my favorite bands. But I don't know if people listen to Kiss for the music necessarily. And so it almost sounded like, oh, this is too clean sounded. Like, I want the mistakes. Like, yeah, they're such a visual band. You imagine them live. Right. And when they're live, it's well, going to be mistakes. A little sloppy. Yeah. So you want the record to represent that. Right. Uh, if there was a, a band like Toto. Well, Toto. in the sound perfect crazy nights would have been a i don't well i don't know if toto would have ever I don't know why i brought we brought up toto because we were talking about weezer but that's a great example like kiss and toto two iconic bands uh you know some people will go well toto's kind of boring in concert but that's because they're i don't know how they i don't know how steve lukather goes about his live performance but i would imagine he's like i don't have to move around like ace i'm steve lukather yeah I don't have to have lasers shooting out of my guitar. But as a fan, I mean, as an audience member, I want to see those lasers. Shoot oh, I want to see the fucking bombs. I want to see the yeah. drum kit going to the roof of the arena. I want the bass player spitting blood, uh, which I guess Gene is the only one who does that. Uh, I want the uh, the drummer from Alice Cooper's band. His name's Glenn Sobel. Uh, I could watch him play drums all day. Yeah. One, he's very technically proficient, but he does the little twirlies and the uh -huh. flips the stick up and will catch it behind his back and not miss a note. Um, although I did just see the drummer from... I saw Journey and Def Leppard play. And the drummer from Journey's got to be close to 70 now, Steve Smith. And wow, can he play still. And he's just in his little dress shirt. and he's He looks, you know, frail. Because mm -hmm. he's, you know, fuck, he's 70. Or it's close to it. Uh, but then the drummer from Def Leppard is amazing to watch with uh, one arm. Sure, yeah. And his drum kit is, you know, he's got like 10 pedals by his feet. Uh, you, you know, so it's very... Uh, would you? How would you... I'm just curious, as someone who's done it all in the, in the sound and engineering, say your task with doing the new Def Leppard record, uh, how would you go about doing the drums? Would you sit down with him and like, cause you know, obviously you have to have some kind of a system with him cause he has one arm. Well, I'm sure they've, they've, yeah, they've perfected that system just tailor-made for him. I mean, he's, uh, he's got multiple foot pedals, which will, um, you know, help aid in the, in the toms that he couldn't hit with his other arm. So, you know, ah, they've, I'm sure they've got that dialed in. They've discovered techniques I wouldn't even thought of at this point. Right. I mean, imagine in 2018, anything's yeah. possible. Yeah. I mean, still, he wants to have control of it. Right. Uh, he doesn't want it to just be a computer. So I, whatever they've worked out, I'm sure it's, it's got to be mind boggling. So I will say in concert, it's like, you don't, you kind of lose track that he just has one arm. Is it? Wow. He's. Although I did think it was kind of fucked up about an hour and a half into the show. They play their acoustic song, uh, Two Steps Back. And uh, I heard about that. Jesus Christ, this must be his break. They make him play the maraca the for maraca. 10 minutes. It's kind of <laughs> fucked up. 
So, Jack, I could go yeah. on forever. This could be a seven-hour podcast. Oh, and, and while we're on uh, drummers, really Please. quick. Um, uh, I don't know if you know, but we have uh, a new drummer. Uh, he was he played in the Cramps. Uh, and he was also an original member of uh, the Gun Club, which is a seminal uh, gothic, southern gothic band originated in L.A. Um, around 1979. Um and that came about uh, sort of from The Bags, which was a 1977 L.A. punk band. So anyway, uh, Terry Graham, he's an original dude. So he's our, he's our new drummer. He's uh, done this round of shows with us. Now, because we haven't talked a lot about the inner workings of a band, mm. which I'm fascinated when it's all about This chemistry. one's unique because I've, I've, I do it here. Uh, you know, it really started here in L.A., uh, you know, a lot of promoters will call us a New Mexico band, but we really started it here. Now, I do have um, my my band members in New Mexico, and we have traveled here before, um, and we do shows in New Mexico. So, uh, you know, I have I, there's multiple members, and depending on travel schedules, it, it depends on on who's going to play and which shows. Uh, so there's, uh, and, and and I might even branch it out further. You know, I don't know. I've, I've been getting a lot of uh, requests uh, in England, and UK to to bring the show there. So I got to figure out how I'm going to do that. Uh, but I'm in the process of working on that. So maybe maybe 2019 we'll we'll have some. We'll do a tour in, in England. Paging Vicky Hamilton. I see a uh, teenage werewolves and healthy junkies tour. Maybe. But oh yeah, that's right. They were amazing. They're right? they're from London. Yeah. Yeah, I saw them yeah. uh, play live at uh, Bar Sinister. And uh, they have a great vibe. It's, oh, you know, I was the, the first DJ at Bar Sinister. Really? When it started, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I was in the goth scene pretty heavy. And uh, uh, my friends, uh, this married couple, uh, Jack and Trisha, they had a, a club called the Fang Club at the Monte Cristo. I think it was on Pico or Beverly. I can't remember which where at this point. But um, they did that club and their, uh, their relationship split up. So she went on to want to start something because he, he was moving on to doing something else. And um, a few of us um, got together. We were all friends at the time and uh, throwing out ideas. And um, so anyway, the yeah, Bar Sinister started back then and I was uh, first DJ. It didn't last too long. We had... Little differences of, of, of opinion in, in, in uh, that. So I, I stuck around for maybe uh, a month or six six weeks. I, I don't remember at this point. But it's so, I, I'm sure people who aren't from LA are going, what the hell are these guys talking about? Clubs yeah, well, I, you know, Bar Sinister, Bar Sinister is, I'm not sure, it, it's, I'm not sure it, it's gone f longer than Helter Skelter, but uh, it is one of the, the longest running goth clubs. Oh, it's great. I, I'm not really into the goth uh, thing. I'm not against it. I just, it's mm. not my thing. But like, it was so fun. It brought me back to my like. So you went to the show? You went I went, oh, the Healthy Junkies. Oh, great. Like, uh, it was super fun. And yeah. uh, they're a great, they're a very tight band. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the, the singer, I get like a, like a Dale Bozio meets oh, nice. uh, Debbie Harry type vibe. And uh you know kind of a youngish bass player and uh the guitar player is great and uh i i really like the drummer because you can tell the drummer has uh like metal roots so it's it's definitely a punk band but like with a little hinge of black sabbath mm. 
so it's, I could see them, uh, and with Vicky's guidance, uh, like I could see uh, good things. Yeah. So, uh, like when you bring in a new drummer, like you guys have, like, and I think I asked Vicky this about her various bands. Obviously, you want them to be musically proficient, so you know they can play the songs and the parts. Mm -hmm. If someone's not maybe the greatest musician, but you have a great vibe with them, what do you prefer? Great vibe, average musician, great musician, average uh, vibe. Well, there's another caveat in what we do is they also have to, you know, looking the part is pretty important too. Yes, because if you look at it, please uh, feel like an old man. Google pictures of the cramps. Yeah, and and see, it's an interesting. Uh, <laughs> Alice Cooper meets Adam Ant meets meets Adam's family, right? Right. So it's uh, definitely uh, you just can't be a you have to look the part as well. Yeah. Uh, now I give Terry our new our new drummer who's older a uh, um, little allowance there because you know he comes with a, uh, his own uh, experience and reputation, which is great. Uh, but by my drummer in uh, New Mexico, uh, Constance, uh, I've been working with her from almost pretty much the beginning. Uh, she always looks great and looks the part. And, um, and she has, you know, got a solid clock in her head, she, really good uh, uh, timing. Uh, but, but she loves to dress the part. And, um, and, you know, very reliable people. I, it's the reliability, uh, because, you know, you and I are one man shows where I, I gotta be the manager and the age booking agent and do all the legwork. And uh, I like doing that because I want the, the band members to just enjoy it, come in, rehearsal, do the shows, have fun, and then we're out. And I, I do all the rest. Yeah, so Constance is in that photo right in the middle there. Um, but my point is, um, yeah, it's a trade-off, you know, uh, getting a really great player versus uh, a person who can keep good time, but who is uh, all about the band or the imagery. Right. I'm not talking specifically about any of my members, but um, uh, the reliability, what I was going to say, is is very important in, in doing these things like what you and I do, where we have to do it all ourselves. I need to work with people who I know aren't going to, you know, fuck up or, or flake a show or, you know, I, I really got to rely on. So the people I work with, uh, you know, Roy and Kent, uh, those guys are just solid guitar players. And then there's Tim and Billy in New Mexico. Uh, these guys, are, you know, I could trust them, uh, with anything I've got in my life. You know, they'll, I know they'll, they'll back me up, well, but they're solid players too. So it just makes my, my job a little bit easier knowing that when we come to rehearsal, they're already going to be rehearsed. We got it down. We're not wasting time. Uh, cause when I, when I come to LA, I really only have like time for two or three rehearsals before our first show. Yeah. And how do you, uh, like, you know, the cramps are, you know, an, old, an older band, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah. And they're dead. <laughs> well, yeah. He is. We can't get any older than that. Uh, but, you know, their fashion is, is I, I guess you'd say, older as well. You know, it's uh, late 70s, early 80s type of. How do you, in 2018, kind of. Get to get that fashion, you know, the look. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a certain grace period with the so-called goth scene. Is it where you know it started off? Nobody knew where it was going to evolve to, and it became uh, sort of its own 
entity that just stuck around. And, uh, you know, there's certain parameters that it might move towards, but uh, it, it's become a, a sort of a retro movement that is still, you know, in so many circles around the world, still current. That kind of makes it easy because um, I'm not reinventing the wheel. Uh, I, I dress in clothes I, I wear in the street anyway, you know, I love. So the look of the band... Um, you know, when they started off, they looked a little more um, homemade in the you know late seventies when they started right. off. But by the by the early eighties and on, um, they had dialed in uh, their look, and uh, you know they kept pushing their own boundaries with bringing in elements that weren't necessarily goth or punk or rockabilly. Uh, but you know they had really eccentric tastes with film and music. Um, so that's what really that's what made it interesting to me was um, that they weren't just one they weren't pigeonholed into one thing. Right. It, it was really the whole kitchen sink and anything, almost anything goes. And uh, those are the that's the kind of uh, it's just a project for me. I, that's why I one reason sure. why I jumped into it wholeheartedly because I knew that I could. Uh, there weren't a lot of parameters. Um, except for the fact that we do the music to a T we do it just like the record. So I, I want people when they come to the show to close their eyes and not be able to tell if it's the cramps or not right. on stage when they open them, they're, you know, they'll be able to see that it's not the cramps, but we put on such, so much, uh, of a bells and whistles show that, uh, I think we make up for the fact that we're not them. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And you know, a lot of our audience uh, you know, I hate to say it, but aren't even familiar with the cramps. They come there for one reason or another, come to our shows, they see our show. And in the end, they're coming up to me and saying, uh, where can we buy that record? And I say, well, you can buy it at the record store. You can get, download it because it's the cramps. Uh, but that's great. I, I love the fact that they're blown away by the show, not even knowing really what it's about. It's almost like it's an inside joke, right? you know? Uh, and yet the joke's not on anybody because we're all having fun. Yeah, it's done, and like you said. Like it was, it's just you know, it's the weirdest project. I never expected to be doing it this long. Um, I thought it would be great to do a couple really cool venues. That you know, I I know some promoters, and when I start, I thought, man, if I take this show to this venue, we're gonna pull this crowd, and we're gonna have an amazing time. And I could walk away from that after a few shows, but we, you know, I kept getting better shows. Uh, the audience, you know, got got. Uh, more loyal and start following us. And um, so it's like, I never felt a point where I wanted to, to put it on a shelf. I mean, we did take some time off here and there because we don't do a lot of shows. We only do a handful of shows a year and some, you know, we've even skipped a couple years here and there, but um, you know, we've got to play with uh, David J from Bauhaus. Uh, we did a double headlining show at the, at the Viper room with him. And then, you know, since then I've, I've, uh, and, and kind of friends with him. He came out to Albuquerque, New Mexico and did a, an acoustic show in my house. And we, we sold tickets. Uh, he does this acoustic show. So um, uh, we did that. And uh, yeah, we got big things in the works. So as long as it keeps getting a little bigger and a little bigger, I'm, I'm still going to be in it. But yeah, it's, it's really is the weirdest, I, the weirdest night. I never thought I'd be doing a cover band of, of any sorts, but here I am doing this. But it's a labor of love. It right? is. And that's like, 
you know, I'm sure you, I don't want to speak for you, but like I've certainly done gigs that, you know, it's money's not the the motivating factor, but you love doing it. And yeah, I'd rather do something like that than be on a TV show or, or for you be in a band or produce an artist where it's like, this isn't fun. Yeah. Even if the money's great, which right. I know money's great. I mean, like, believe me, there's a, each one of these trips takes a lot out of me. And that's why I had to rush off and take, take a piss. <laughs> oh, please. I, I'm staying way up in the, at the North side of the Valley so every, you know, wherever, everywhere I go, I'm having to drive like 40 minutes. I'm staying at my, my friend's house uh, who I've known forever. Just great people. Um, and that's, that's an odd story how we met. I think we met in an orgy. Oh, well, I was about <laughs> to end the podcast, but like, I think we just started one. Well, Get the teaser not, going. You can't just gloss over an orgy. I got too many things that are gloss overable. I mean, there's just so many things we could talk about. I, I don't even... Um, let me check the sound levels all right so so the house (laughs) the house i met them at was this uh woman who is uh big in the feminist movement in the the 60s and she had this house full of dolls she was a a doll collector from the 20s 30s all decades her whole whole house is filled with dolls we call it the house of dolls keep talking you won't see Um, my face for a second and so I've, yeah, I, I've been friends with um, these nude models uh, who who pose at all the uh, art schools and, and different very uh, unusual venues uh, as part of the gallery girls. And that's um, who I'm staying with uh, while I'm here. Uh, great people. I don't even, they're, they're so great. I don't even know why they're this great to me. But um, I couldn't do it, you know, if I didn't have friends like this helping out. Uh, so, you know, it comes back to the one man show business. Um, you know, if you don't have friends who can help you, then, you know, the project may not get off the ground because, you know, like I said, I, I'm not doing this project for the money. I, I do it for, cause it's a gas. Yeah. I mean, well, if you don't have friends in show business, you ain't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> although we're, you know, in some sense, it's never been easier to make it in this business, whether it's comedy, music, movies, mm. with the advent of, you know, do-it-yourself uh, avenues like podcasts and, you know, home studios where you, you don't need to go to, you know, Larrabee Sound. You can just build your own studio in your garage with Pro Tools and Auto-Tune and, right. and, and make your own shit. And, uh, but it also helps to have people in your corner yeah i mean i write i rely on friends to help you know uh videotape photographers you know giving up their time and i I pay them when i can you know some shows pay more than others um it's it's really organic you know every show is different sometimes we'll do a repeat show like we did at the monty where you know we know it's going to be sold out uh and you know i love working with uh with danny fuentes who's um who uh owns lethal mounts gallery um so that's always that's always a a slam dunk uh so it's great to work with repeats and friends like that but yeah yeah you know um people helping out they're like the fifth member of the band which the fifth member of the band is usually the most important because they're the ones who gets shit done and uh let's get back to that orgy now that we've got uh you know that (laughs) stuff i mean how do you meet someone at an orgy well, you start, you start that you remain friends with. You start with a dozen uh, nude mod art models, and you take it from there. 
you know, you're being a little secretive about this orgy. Uh, well, Jack. you know, I don't have photos. I can't prove it. It's just, you're just going to have to believe me. No, believe me. I believe you. Oh. Uh, so, Jack, we're at the time. It's like circus performers. They're, they're like circus performers. <laughs> of sorts. Yeah. Uh, what's next after this West Coast what's show next? is over? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go, go back to New Mexico. We'll do some shows there. Um, I got to look into seeing how viable doing a, a UK tour would be as far as what's next for the band. Yeah, but tomorrow's show, that's going to be another gas. It's going to be a great, great show. And engineering wise, do you have any artists, your uh, any projects, your film, uh, you're working um, on that you can talk about? I know things are hush hush sometimes. Sometimes I I just mixed um, a band for Ozo Motley. Oh yeah, yeah, Grammy award winning LA band. Yeah, how was that? It was great. Um, you know, they send me the tracks uh, online. I mix them, send them back. We go back and forth. Yeah. So were you? Did you? Were you ever in the same room with them? No, uh-uh. for mixing. No. Um, now, are you able to pause again? Because you have to go to the I bathroom don't know what's again? going on, man. I don't know what's going on with you. Well, I, I'd hold like on. You, those drives. This is the inappropriate Earl first. Two bathroom breaks, but I like yes. I like Jack so much. Fuck it. We're gonna pause again. All right, we are back. This is like record-breaking uh, appearance. I tell you, I'm, I'm not doing this on purpose. Maybe you think I just, sometimes I should get checked out? I mean, uh, I, I'm no urologist, but uh, you might want to get your urethra checked. But I'm one to talk, Jack. I mean, My I... Urethra. Or whatever. Uh, Prostate? You, well, well, yeah, to get that checked, you got, too. You got some rubber gloves? No, I'm just um, kidding. Hey, we are in West Hollywood. When in Rome, <laughs> believe me, I'm not the only guy with rubber gloves in his house in this building. Oh, I am sure the only not. straight guy in this building, but that's that's another podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> Ozo Motley. Oh yeah, yeah. You've got that in the pipeline. They send you tracks. You send them back. I mean, do you? At this point, you're so. Uh, locked in but i would think you'd want to be like in the room and go i i'm a people person um you know what when when it comes to if yeah when tracking yeah when all the ideas are being compiled uh you you obviously have to be in the room you'd prefer to be in the room because it's that interaction at the the talk and the the ideas on spur of the moment um that's where that magic happens but then you know the other then the second half of it is you kind of need somebody to have two hands on the steering wheel, the same person. You know, if you've got three people with hands on the steering wheel, it's going to be a bumpy ride. You know, it's going to take a lot longer to get your destination. So uh, with when you have one person mixing it, if, if you give them the space to do their magic, if that's why you're hiring them, then you're probably going to get good results. Um, so I, I kind of prefer... I like being having tunnel vision and just having uh, me being in the room working it. I send them what I have. Um, you know, we might be 90% in the bag. They give me some feedback. Um, and then we take it from there. So does that answer your question? I, I, I like being um, the only guy in the room in that process. I, it, I work much faster that way. I, you know, it's like people who work at night. They do that because they're not going to get phone calls, knocks on the door, text messages. You're going to have um, undivided time and attention. 
to do what you got to do. Oh, I love working uh, at night. And uh, yeah. Uh, but when I find when I'm writing like jokes and it might be different for songwriting and, and what you do, I need mass distractions. Like I need the TV on. Oh, no kidding. I, I'm stimulated uh, by noise. Huh. Like That's I could really go. Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, you know, I could go in the comedy store patio right now where there's probably a hundred people talking. I just need the it's like ambient or background noise. Yeah. Cause my Does that have anything to do with your thinking about your delivery to an audience? So it's it's you're almost simulating an audience by being around noise or the TV when you're writing it? It's possible. I mean, my delivery uh you know, it's kind of a one note delivery. Like I, there's, it's uh, almost like how Tony Iommi plays guitar. It's that same tone, <laughs> you know, that uh, heavy, dark, uh, and that's my voice. Mm -hmm. I don't, my voice rarely inflects higher. Or I don't know if it can go lower, but uh, I probably sound like I'm in mid transition permanently. Uh, but that's just how I do it. And, yeah, and so uh, I perform the same to every crowd, even though every crowd's going to be different. I don't, uh, which is good and bad. Some people like that. I'm like a guitar player who plays one style. Mm -hmm. You either like it or you don't. And sometimes you get into trouble when you, you know, like younger crowds. I think, at least with comedy, prefer you know, like a Dane Cook, Chris D'Elia, who are, are very high energy, all over the place. Comics are moving, they're making faces, they're, they're very uh, performers. Where, yeah. And that's great. I wish I could do that style. I just, I'm more of a stand in the center of the stage, literally. I, I might, if I'm feeling it, take the mic out of the hole. And that's it. Uh -huh. And stand very still and uh, of course, late night, especially at the comedy store, you have to be a little more animated because they've seen everything. Yeah. What do you think about uh, like Robin Williams, who had such a, a, a frenetic uh, personality, he was just like never could stop moving. He was, you know, he was telling his joke and responding to his own joke. It's like he was going so fast. Well, I that, think that might have had to do with the uh, powdered refreshment yeah. going through his veins. Right. Uh, I would say if you like Robin Williams, you probably wouldn't like me. Just from the we're so polar opposite. It's like comparing Pavarotti to, you know, Ozzy. Well, that's Osborne. assuming that anybody only likes one kind of music, right? I I like like I, I, I love comedy. I don't. I'm you know I I'm not that good at it but i know don't let that stop you jack no i you know i'm 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 game for it um but you know one thing i was going to ask you on the ride over i was thinking um who are some of your comedic heroes from like yesteryear well that's the strange thing about me is uh i did you, know, you ever think about being a comedian when you were a kid when do you think that happened well i was friend you know i would say in the mid 80s to to I would say from like 85 to 90, I, I ran with a real wild group of dudes. Um, they were all agents and managers. And I mean, at ICM, William Morris, uh, mm. three, or I don't think three arts was around, but the biggest of the big. And they were all like, Earl, you're the funniest person we know. You'd be the funniest guy at any of our agencies. Just get into stand-up, start, get your feet wet, and we'll help make you whatever famous no kidding wow that's quite that's quite an intro 
Well, it in theory on paper it was, and then when I started stand up, they all left the business to get into fucking real estate. So oh. I was literally like a uh, fish out of water. Yeah. So that's why it took me a little longer to. Not that I've made it now, but whatever it is, I am. Um, mm-hmm. But as a kid, I didn't really listen to stand up per se. I, uh, which goes to the sense of humor I have now. Um, like Archie Bunker to me, who, you know, the great Carol O'Connor, oh, yeah, yeah. who certainly was not a stand up. But I think I, even as a kid, subconsciously liked how this guy's saying some awful things basically portraying it a bumbling buffoonish yeah i I loved that show yeah but he but you liked him still like he was obviously a horrible racist right but there was something likable about him um and there was a television show in the late 70s and i think 1980 uh only was on for three seasons called the white shadow and i always talk about this show to people who are not familiar with it it was basically an ensemble version of All in the Family where it was a TV show about a white coach oh, in a the basketball ghetto. coach, right? Yes, basketball coach in the ghetto. He was a, he was a white in NBA player. He hurt his knee. He had to retire. Mm. And uh, an old friend from the NBA said, hey, this school in the ghetto needs a coach. Yeah. And it really just played upon racial stereotypes. Like, uh, I think 90% of the team was black because it was in the ghetto. So they were all like scheming and conniving, you know, uh, guys. The, the Jewish guy in the team, which I don't know how a Jewish guy got on a fucking team in the ghetto. Nobody liked him. He was the whiny guy. The Italian guy was a dope. The Mexican guy, nobody liked. Really? So they just played up on the stereotypes. But right? it was such a, it, I mean, I guess you would say it, it was almost a dramedy because it wasn't just a straight, it was like All in the Family where they mm-hmm. dealt with a lot of serious issues and like the White Shadow dealt with rape, uh, abortions. Uh, probably one of my favorite TV episodes ever was um, in the very first season, the uh, a gay player from another high school. He was, you know, he wasn't out. So he went to Carver High, which was the school, figuring, oh, nobody knows me here. And then one day they play, the team is playing pickup basketball at a a schoolyard. And there just happens to be another group of guys playing basketball from his old school. And, And it dealt with like, so they start calling him a fag. Yeah. And then, his new school is like, why are they calling you that? It was like mm. just really well done, but it was somewhat funny how they did it. So that those were my comedy influences, um, not traditional stand-up. So what about uh, something like SNL? Did you watch that as a kid? The first SNL I loved, Chevy Chase, um, you know, Dan Aykroyd playing Tom Snyder, which you know younger people are like, who's Tom Snyder? It, it was like this over the top, uh, serious, like a, kind of a an alternative version to Johnny Carson, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. And and Dan Aykroyd's impression of him was just like, but you had to know who Tom Snyder was to get it, right? Um, I love Norm Macdonald on SNL, who did the Weekend Update, yeah, because he had this great, uh, pardon my language, I don't give a fuck, like he hammered OJ after the murder trial 
knowing that OJ's best friend was the head of NBC Sports, Don Olmeyer. And Don Olmeyer was calling Lauren Michael saying, hey, you got to have him stop doing those OJ no jokes. No kidding. And Norm didn't. It's like, no. Huh. Head of I, I didn't realize that the, that the players had that much pull. Well, I think Don Olmeyer's pretty influential. I mean, obviously, it's got to go through Lauren Michaels, but Lauren Michaels gives the players, I guess, a certain allowance to... Well, he didn't give Norm that much of an allowance because he was fired when Norm kept doing the oh, jokes. Oh, oh. Okay. Because there's the best... I think oh, so he would go off script or Lauren Michaels wouldn't approve of it? Well, I it think aired? they more or less said, hey, you got to cool it on. I, I would... No one's told me this, but you could tell like they probably went up to him and, hey, it's funny, but you got to cool it on the OJ yeah. stuff because <laughs> Lauren is friends with Don Olmeyer. Yeah. That's OJ's buddy. It's, you know, it's kind of surprising how the, the talk show host nowadays, especially like uh, Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, they really hold, you know, the president's feet to the fire and they get away with a lot of shit. Well, I think it's, now it surprises me. I mean, yeah, get away with. I think Norm could definitely have his own talk show now. Yeah. But I think there's so many now different avenues. You know, like I for comedy will watch one hour of CNN, and then I'll go to Fox News, and then I'll go to MSNBC. Now CNN and MSNBC are pretty much the same network. Mm -hmm. Like they hate Trump, yeah, and right. they just rail on him 24 mm. 7 and but then i go to fox which is the complete the opposite. opposite they yeah. love trump and uh and colbert i mean there's there's not too many conservative uh talk shows like you know i would say most of like conan fallon uh, seth myers i think they lean probably toward the left yeah uh well, i guess rush limbaugh you might say is somewhat of a talk show but it is you know, fascinating to watch uh, in this era of divisiveness, how everyone has a market and, you know, Rush Limbaugh kills it. And then you have, you know, Colbert kills it. Yeah, and there's not really much in the middle. You know, I... I, think I mean, some some try to not hit as hard, like, as Colbert does. I don't think uh, Jimmy Fallon does. I think more softball approach yeah but i don't think in the middle plays like because you, you're kind of you're splitting your audience like you know i've always wished there was a talk show that ripped into both sides because i would think you would get both you get people watching who hate trump and people watching who love trump uh and it's not just trump but you know whatever side whatever issues you know yeah uh but it just seems people want one or the other and yeah, that, that definitely is a sign of the times. So it's, but you know, as a comic, you know, for me, it's like Trump is great. So, you know, it's just so, uh, just the divisiveness is great for humor. Mm -hmm. But that's my kind of humor in the first place is very dry and sarcastic. And just so when Trump says something, like, it's just great. Oh, all right. So going back to uh, when we started this, um, I mentioned Don Rickles. What, what do you think of? Oh, he's my, if you asked me to pick a stand up, and he wasn't even really a traditional stand up, uh, he has my favorite comedy album of all time, uh, which is Don Rickles Live at the Sands, yeah. which is in 1968. Was it? Uh, and, you know, you know, once again, 
I, I feel old saying this because I have a young fan base. So that they're mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about, dad? Uh, the things he was saying on this comedy album for 68 were so ahead of their time. I think it probably even could be ahead of its time now. He he was he pushed that envelope more than anybody I thought. Oh, but but I mean, what I loved about him was he didn't swear. It was all innuendo. It's very much Archie Bunker esque type mm. of humor. Um, like uh, I remember uh, what you know. There was a he was just cruel. <laughs> But like I love innuendo. But that's why we we were fascinated by his approach, well, especially back then. And it, and it goes back to even like you know the White Shadow for like what they were saying, and and then all in the family, and and Don Rickles maybe was a precursor to all those type of shows. Uh, the Jeffersons was another was like the Black All in the Family. But I mean Rickles in '68, they're you know it's just a uh, it's no video, it's just an audio CD or a recording uh mm-hmm. and i think there was a black gentleman in front and he's like uh i don't know if you're smiling or uh, i'm at an ivory hunt you know just because the teeth you know the white <laughs> he teeth. said that yeah and oh it's just like God. to a kid today that's used to seeing you know you know graphic you know you know you watch a show like i don't know anything on fx which is pretty out there and yeah like, uh, what's the big deal about saying ivory hunt but back in 68 that's the summer of the race riots like uh you know there was another uh he asked uh a mexican guy in the front a question and, and the guy didn't really answer right away <laughs> he's just like ah you're mexican no wonder you guys all end up being waiters <laughs> it was just okay. like so crazy to say that in 68 now to yeah. a kid who's watching like dice clay or kennison is like oh, what's the big deal about calling a mexican guy a waiter but in 68 it was like insanity to say something like that and there's a black guy in the back he's like uh to the negro gentleman in the back uh have a nice summer and it was like oh during the riots yeah during the riot, oh, you know and, and uh so i like to me that's just like to get away with that in the time era you know it's just like uh yeah he was fearless just like you know it's like i i think jimmy hendrix like for his era pushing the envelope treading new ground the lack of technology that was around when he was playing like i can only imagine what Jimi hendrix would do with you know the guitars that say van halen was Mm. given access to now maybe it wouldn't have been any better but like i would love to see Jimi hendrix in a studio with you with pro tools and auto tuning and he probably wouldn't need it no auto tuning right but like right. just to see him with modern yeah like uh advancements mm-hmm. or even just uh i mean i love Jimi hendrix cds the way they sound just as they are i hate it when they remaster them because uh, it takes away the soul uh but like it would be neat to see Jimi hendrix record an album in 2018 like yeah i, I think about that often i think about what, what if you drop this artist from the, the from the past into to today's music, could they swim? I, and some of them, I don't think they could. I, I think they're at the right place at the right time. Uh, I, I think not all artists can transition like that. Yeah, I mean, I I say that a lot with uh, sports. It's like, um, like I'm a hockey guy, so you know, the, and it's hockey's somewhat like the music business from the standpoint of like, you take. Um, 
Bobby Orr, who's one of the great hockey players of all time, but he grew up playing wood sticks. Oh, did he? Yeah. So if Bobby Orr played in 2018 with a $300 graphite carbon stick with any curve he wanted like you know back then when he was playing you had one curve that's it yeah how maybe he wouldn't be any better uh you know he was probably the greatest skater in the history of the nhl with pretty generic skates right today the skates are that the nhl players use today are 500 dollars skates with like you know titanium blades mm. and uh, you know, it's very much like, you know, I would love to, could Eddie Van Halen, how would he play in the mid sixties? Yeah. No. You know, you couldn't, you know, there was no whammy bars back then, or, you know, like, could he be thought of as he is now? If he 20 years earlier, you know, John Bonham, how would he be on drums with all the, you know, Neil. I think he would. T- I think he would stand up still. Oh, I'm sure he would <laughs> yeah. do quite well, but well, only because uh, the technology in drums isn't that advanced. I mean, you're still hitting the skin, right? You know, I so I think probably wouldn't have, have uh, changed where where he went, but but yeah, there's other tools are are massively different. Whether we're talking about sports or music or you know technology in in, in general. Well, even at that St. Jude's concert uh, that Vicky took me to on Sunday, they had, uh, I guess, the surviving members of the Doors. There's only two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robbie Krieger and John Densmore. And uh, it's pretty cool. It was, it was a great cause. And uh, they had some pretty famous acts. You know, Elliot Easton from the Cars. He, he did three songs, and then he would leave the stage. And then uh, um, Alex Lifeson from Rush. He did, you know, three songs. He would leave the stage. So they had different drummers and different. And then John Densmore did a few songs with Robbie Krieger. And, uh, you know, they had this very nice drum kit. You know, I guess that would be technically like the, the best there is today. And yeah, and uh, John Densmore sounded as good as any of these younger drummers who were playing in, in the rest of the night. And so it was kind of neat to see them all play they played the same kit and everyone played the same guitars no one you know they didn't bring their own stuff so it was kind of neat to see everyone on a level playing field right so uh you know there was this 18 year old guitar player by the name of ray gorn who's like this prodigy on guitar and you know alex lifeson would play give this guitar just 18 year old prodigy and it's like all right see how you play this guitar and it's like really neat to like it's like i guess everyone getting the same hockey stick all right you yeah. play with this now so it was kind of neat it was a neat concert the only one that brought his own guitar was elliot easton because he's left-handed so i did one of those benefits um you said saint jude or saint joseph saint jude uh oh, okay it's a, a yeah. some ranch in malibu and uh mm-hmm. robbie krieger's uh it's uh his uh charity concert i guess they do it once a year and uh, it was really uh it was an amazing, uh, you know, you're at this uh, farm with buffalo mm. and uh, a ranch. I guess it's not a farm. But there's a giraffe. It's the craziest thing to see the guitar player from Rush playing Tom Sawyer, <laughs> and there's a giraffe over his leg. I mean, it was just like, yeah. I felt like I was on peyote for the first time. It was like it's the most amazing background to see all these world-class musicians, uh, you know, so... Uh, 
but it was a great cause for, I think they raised a couple million dollars because yeah. you could bid on things. I was going to bid on the Van Halen guitar, but it was a little rich for my blood. And uh, they had this really hot auctioneer doing the, you know, and 500, 5, 6, 7, 800. And she was like wearing this really low cut dress and like the, the, these rich business guys are, yeah, yeah, it was 10,000, 20. I'm like, all right, I'm out. So, I mean, Jack. Oh, really quickly about but, the St. Joseph's. Uh, no, quickly. Take um, your time. I did one of those uh, benefits. It was at the Beverly Hills Hotel with the the makeup band. And uh, uh, we had Adam Lambert. Uh, oh, from, uh, well, he's in Queen now, yeah. I guess. So the tie-in the tie-in here was that we did, him and I did uh, Under Pressure, David Bowie. Oh, wow. Freddie, uh, at, this, um, at this benefit. And, uh, and we both did full-on costumes and everything. So this is before he made it, you know, before American Idol and all that. Uh, so I got a photo. I'll, I'll put the post it someday. I've had this thing forever, but uh, a photo of me, I'm dressed up like, like diamond dogs, Bowie. And he's next to me in um, leather jacket, fake chest hair, buck teeth, mustache, <laughs> really looking really kind of goofy. But isn't it just how odd is that, that he was doing uh, Freddie Mercury back then? And then he goes on to become the singer. Oh, I I love him in Queen. I mean, and it's certainly nothing against Paul Rogers, who's like he's great. Yeah, just I don't know if it was necessarily company. The, the right fit. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ, covering Freddie Mercury is going to be tough for anyone. But I, I definitely think Adam Lambert has the. Uh, he's got the theatrical range. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the uh, vocally. I mean, the aura. I mean, he he could be, uh, which is interesting to see Bohemian Rhapsody come out, I think this week. Right. Uh, yeah, on the first, maybe, or the second. Because I know uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was the original choice. Yeah, he was. And I think he, uh, I was reading up on that, he wanted to play, played a little more seedier, like, ah, I just don't want to do like the the good version of Freddie Mercury. I don't, right. You know, obviously. You know, yeah. Live, live Freddie was life. one of the most colorful characters there ever was. And I think the band. Behind the scenes. Yes. Behind, and I'm not yeah. just talking about being gay. That's no big deal. Uh, I mean, nowadays it's like, oh, you're gay. Uh, nowadays, if you say you're straight, it's like, what? Uh, that's crazy. Um, but I think he wanted to do, you know, warts and all type of uh, and i think uh brian may specifically was like uh nuts oh he did yeah i I heard brian may had a pretty pretty strong hand of control over, over which i want to see a warts and all version of any artist like you know especially and not the you know you don't have to get into every sexual escapade but you know he he did live a wild lifestyle right yeah very unconventional even for a rock star rock star uh terms well, especially back then, you know, uh, you know, if you were gay in the seventies and eighties, and and someone of his fame level, uh, you couldn't really, couldn't really talk about it because you'd ruin your fan base. Yeah, there. I I think about that. Uh, there's only a few exceptions. You know, Bowie came out and kind of said he was bisexual, and and um, of course that he was already a controversial figure. So I think. You know, he probably lost some fans, but probably gained more out of all that. Right. Uh, somebody like Elton John probably waited a long time to come out. Well, I think he was. And he, 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 I've heard him say a number of times he's shocked that he's not dead after all the, you know, unprotected sex he had over all those years. Oh, I can. Uh, I mean, like, uh, I, 
you know, I had a guest on this uh, podcast about, um, I don't know, maybe about 15 or so episodes ago. His name's Jeffrey Marks, Broadway uh, singer. And, uh, you know, we're talking and he just randomly kind of blurts out halfway in the interview. Uh, you know, I fucked Freddie Mercury, right? Oh, did like, he? oh uh, well, this podcast just changed direction. Yeah. And he told the story. It's a sex club in New York. It was just kind of a random uh, encounter unprotected and so i think a lot of those guys in that yes you know, pre-aids you know at least no one knew about it right probably around but just no one uh so it's like it really is amazing to see like elton john still around and uh yeah i mean i can't believe more my 80s metal comrades of yeah not uh you know you look at motley Crue, and of course i'm obsessed with rat and can imagine they're all st well one's gone but uh you know it really is uh that that was a wild time and uh, you know the, i see these 80s packages of like there was one package of like wang chung uh you know flock of seagulls new wave package yeah it was a new well, way you say package what do you mean package uh yeah it was probably six or seven bands uh oh a festival a, a pack um both i guess a pack of seagulls a, a, yeah a package <laughs> festival uh oh, okay and you would think that late 70s and 80s like how is this festival even possible like with these bands like uh of course who knows how you many mean would, members still being alive yeah oh uh, i see what you mean yeah I mean, I know there's a movie on Netflix coming out about Motley Crue, and it's like, how yeah. the hell do you? And this, well, that's kind of funny because it's like, in this Me Too and Times Up era, how the hell do you do a movie about them? Yeah, realistically, well, in, in one way, that might be a might be a selling point because it, it is so shocking. But I mean, real climate. Yeah, I mean, uh, but I don't know. Uh, you know, like it goes back to the Bohemian Rhapsody. Like it's, I think what the finished product ended up being was i guess you'd say a sanitized version of yeah. of uh his life and uh i i don't know how you do an accurate portrayal of uh you know any band from the 80s in this era you know david lee roth if you did a van halen movie and i don't know how much interest there would be in a van halen movie but like i don't no, know i bet there'd be some yeah I mean, I, I don't know uh, how you can really not get a triple X rating for, uh, you know, what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But hopefully you produce a soundtrack. <laughs> it's, throw it my, see my agent. We'll see what we, what we do on that. Well, Jack, I, I'm humbled and honored. Oh, it's great to meet you. Yeah, I mean, I love when I don't, I find the best interviews I've done on this show are mm. ones where I, I literally meet the person in my parking lot. Ah, that's how we did it, yeah. This all nervous... came together just a couple days ago. But... Yeah, I mean, Vicky, uh, once again, the great Vicky Hamilton uh, has, has set this up and... Uh, Connecting the dots, yeah. You know, she's been amazing to me, you know, uh, introduced me to the healthy junkies and uh, I think she's possibly working on maybe getting cc deville from poison on the couch uh but i yeah i looked you up and it's like wow this guy's this guy's done it all a little here a little there hey i'm not i'm not i haven't hit the big time who has oh <laughs> we could rattle off some axel rose the king axel in uh -huh. malibu but uh all right i'm i have a story of uh wow well, i'm not i'm 
Wait, 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 no, wait. No, no, no. You can't. That's a cliffhanger for part <laughs> right, two. Part two. Okay, when are you back two. in LA? Um, you know, I'm not sure. It might be February ish. Oh, so you will be back here soon. Yeah. If, if that's soon, yeah. Well, that's soon to me. Well, I tell you what, this is what they call in the business, in the podcast business, a teaser. Mr. A Atlantis teaser. will be, as my favorite rat song says, back for more. You ha- give us a teaser on it. Uh, you were alluding to a story you have about someone. Um, I got in a fight with him. Axel Rose. Is yeah. it a quick or a long story? No, it's a long one. So I want you to listen to this podcast now. I want you to go on www.jackatlantis.com. Uh, is there a specific site for the uh, band? Um, they can find it through my, my website, okay. but it's quicker just to go, go to Facebook. Facebook, Teenage Werewolves? Yeah. And Twitter? No Twitter. I love it. God, I wish I could. Mm, and how about Instagram? Yeah, you can go to Instagram too. Uh, what 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 is uh, same thing? Teenage werewolves and uh, individually Jack Atlantis. Yeah, I got one too. Uh, Jack's amazing. Uh, you know, I, it's not often I bond with someone and talk with a stranger for over two. This is about two. This might be the longest podcast <laughs> oh, ever. God. I've broken the P record. And maybe the length record. You've definitely broken the P record. <laughs> the P that's record. that's a, and unless I have a ninety-year-old with a weak prostate, <laughs> that record may last forever. We are now gone on so long. Yeah. You might we, have to edit this down. Oh, I don't edit anything. Oh. I, I don't have your skills. Right. But I think that's this is like the little podcast that could. I'll say we, you know, Cinderella another one of my favorite bands. Mm. They released an album they did at the Key Club, which used to be Gazzari's, which used to be Billboard Live. Right. Now it's One Oak. Ah. They, they did one of my favorite live albums because it's at the Key Club, warts and all. Mm. There's no dubs, uh, you know, a the, the couple mistakes here and there. And when I recognize a mistake as a non-musician, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. Yeah. Uh, this is this podcast. I've had five guests i won't say who say the n-word on this podcast joking trying to do shtick uh-huh. as soon as i hit end, they're like hey you're gonna edit that out right nope <laughs> they gotta live with it you said oh, it oh man you deal with right. it right you, you <laughs> toilet paper out so this Wipe is officially up. we are uh, october 30th 2018 yeah we have an inappropriate Earl podcast record. This is the 255th episode, I believe. The longest podcast. We have now officially, right. for the first time ever, in inappropriate Earl history, gone to the second sound file. There's oh. a point on this sound card where it goes over. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. It's never happened. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to be part of that well. history. I don't know if it's history, but... Uh, well, the, it will be broken. I don't think my P record will be broken, but I'm sure the length record will eventually be broken. Unless I have uh, some uh, a comic from the 60s who's still alive, who's... Uh, Not Don Rickles. Was it just two years? It was last year, 2017. He, here's the crazy thing, and it's kind of ending on a bit of a okay. sad note. I used to play golf with Don's son, Larry. Did you? Who died before he did. Oh, yeah, that's so, sad. Uh, Mm. R.I.P. Larry Rickles, who had maybe the greatest golf shot in the history of golf. 
Uh, Larry was not a great golfer, and on the first hole at Bel Air Country Club, he had shanked many balls out of bounds. He was probably, uh, on the first hole, it's a par five at Bel Air. He was probably at about 22 strokes, and from about 100 yards from the green, he sunk his sand trap shot for a nice score of 26 on the first hole. But it was the greatest... With a pitching wedge? Yes. No he kidding? sunk his shot <laughs> from about 100 yards away for a 26 on the... Uh, so, uh, Larry, I love you. Mr. Rickles, I never met you, but I love you. Jack Atlantis, I love you for doing this. Thank you, Vicki Hamilton, for setting this up. Jack's going to tell his fight with William Bailey, otherwise known as Mr. W. Axel Rose, in February. Become fans of Jack. Support the Teenage Werewolves, Inappropriate Earl, SoundCloud and iTunes, leave a review.